0: So what's wrong with making a story out of the stats? We'll talk about that and more with Joe Sheehan next on Baseball HQ Radio.
1: Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt.
0: And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 21st. It's show number 29 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday show for you. We'll talk with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter about the problems with making narratives out of numbers, about Aaron Judge's performance outlook, Jose Quintana's change of address, some of his thumbs up and thumbs down players, and a lot more. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols looking at J.D. Martinez moving to Arizona, Sean Doolittle and Ryan Madsen moving to Washington, and more National League news. And from the American League, Jock Thompson looks at David Robertson and Tommy Canely moving to the Yankees, Carlos Correa moving to the DL, and more. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, Minor leagues analyst Rob Gordon reports on White Sox outfield prospect Blake Rutherford. In our playing time commentary, analyst Ryan Bloomfield looks at potential trade ripples in Baltimore and Toronto. In our frequent flyers comment, Alex Becky looks at Mets first baseman Dominic Smith and Dodgers starting pitcher Walker Bueller. And in our weekend pitcher matchup segment, Baseball HQ matchups analyst Greg Fishwick looks at both ends of the weekend series between the Cubs and St. Louis. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about answering reader comments and getting some great ideas. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The trade market is really starting to boil. we got to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday edition, our League Watch News reports, Jock Thompson on deck with the American League. And leading off, it's the National League Report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio.
2: Thank you, Patrick. It's always good to be here, and this is an exciting time of the year.
0: Lots of trade talk and other talk to go on in the news in the National League. Let's start with the Diamondbacks. They've been struggling of late. I think they lost something like 11 out of 14, and they did something about it. Uh, They acquired one of the biggest trading deadline bats who was available, J.D. Martinez of the Tigers. Rob Carroll's on the story for playing time today. So how does Martinez fit into that Arizona outfield and their batting order?
2: Well, Martinez had a 9 nine a twelve OPS during his four seasons in Detroit, so that's certainly nothing to sneeze about. Uh, a right-field-only outfielder for the past several years. What will likely happen in Arizona is that David Peralta will move to left field, and uh, they've been sending out players like uh, Daniel Del Scalzo and Gregor Blanco and Chris Herman, uh, and all of those people will take a playing time hit with Martinez's arrival. And the team will have some more outfield decisions to make when Yasmani Tomas returns from his groin injury in, in mid-August, so... They'll be getting additional help back. Martinez missed the first six weeks of 2017 with a sprained ligament in his foot, but he's been in full throttle in July, um, slashing 3 of 40, 407, 617 for the month. And the move from uh, Comerica Park, which is largely neutral, uh, to uh, Chase Field, could enhance his already uh, incredible 28% home run per fly rate. Also noteworthy is the fact that Martinez really abuses left-handed pitching, 1.661 uh, 1.661 OPS in 38 at bats, and for all of Arizona's offensive prowess, uh, their collective their collective uh, OPS against left-handers is .660, so uh, the third lowest in Major League Baseball. So he'll definitely help in that area. Uh, so clearly, Landy Martinez is a win for the Diamondbacks uh, and his fantasy owners for the rest of this year. Uh, and if the is uh, he's a free agent to be, but if he likes his new playing place, which I'm sure I, I would hope he will. Uh, it could put the team in a favorable light if they decide to negotiate for his services for next year and beyond.
0: For months, Nick, the scuttlebutt was that the Nationals were in the market for bullpen help. Uh, heaven knows we talked about it here often enough on Baseball HQ Radio how much trouble they were have finding somebody who could close out games. Well, they got their bullpen help in a big way. They acquired left-handed reliever Sean Doolittle and right-handed reliever Ryan Madsen from the A's and they gave up a right-handed reliever, Blake Trinan, who was one of those guys who flopped as a closer, and some prospects. Phil Hertz covered this for Baseball HQ. Uh, So first, both Doolittle and Madsen have some closing experience. Who's going to be the closer in Washington, do you think?
2: Well, I would guess that both of them would get opportunities to close. Um, There remains a chance still that Washington would go out and get another established closer uh, to further enhance that bullpen. So uh, it's one of those kind of iffy situations. Doolittle got the first save this week. But it seems to me that both of them will get save opportunities down down the line. And both have been pitching very well so far this season. Uh, Madsen, a 2.54 XERA, 8.9 DOM, a 6.5 command, 158 BPV. And Doolittle's actually been even better than that. A a 2.55 XERA, 13.1 DOM, 15.8 command, and a 227 BPV. So uh, both of them are going to do well in that bullpen. Both will get Closing opportunities, and both I think are must-adds in NL formats.
0: That uh, Doolittle's command rate, fifteen point eight strikeouts per walk, is just outstanding. It's a uh, Dennis Eckersley-like, in fact, a tremendous control and a very high strikeout rate. You mentioned thirteen point one strikeouts per nine for his dominance rate. Those are outstanding numbers. Uh, now the question about Doolittle, of course, he's left-handed. And uh, while the stigma about left-handed closers has relaxed over the years somewhat, there's still some uh, some managers out there, some organizations who don't like it because they want that left-handed guy to be available for left-handed out situations. Do you think maybe there's a possibility that, uh, that the uh, Washington Nationals will play the matchups game and use both of these guys to close games?
2: Yeah, I think there is a possibility they will do that, or a situation where you go into the ninth inning expecting two, uh, two left-handed bats coming up, and if the opposing manager pulls a switch on you and brings in a right-handed pinch hitter, you've got the other guy to come in and, and take over. So, I mean, it's one of those situations that's very nice for a manager to have two guys who could close the game out in the ninth. The, the other thing about Doolittle to remember, that, that uh, and, and Washington has, has taken care of themselves in this situation, is the guy has an injury history. Uh, you know, he, he, he's kind of been, been injury prone. Uh, and so they've got a backup if that should happen to him.
0: Madsen had uh, one save this year for Oakland, three blown saves, and had seven blown saves last year for Oakland. He was their primary closer. I think he went 30 for 37 in save opportunities. So there's also that to consider. So I'm not going to say Washington's done yet. Uh, Nick, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if they went out and kept trying to deal. I was a little surprised, in fact, that they didn't um, make more of a run at David Robertson. They were supposedly the lead suitor in that regard. Uh, the surprising Colorado Rockies tied with Arizona for the wild card lead in the National League. Even after going 6-for-21 in a recent stretch. Brian Slack covers the National League West in playing time tomorrow at BaseballHQ.com, and he says that these Rockies have some questions about how they're going to divide up playing time in their outfield. we got Mark Reynolds, seems set at first base. That means Ian Desmond, who was supposed to play first base, will probably play left field because Charlie Blackman's having a terrific year in center. That leaves Carlos Gonzalez as the nominal starter in right field, but he's really been struggling this year.
2: He has indeed. Gonzalez has struggled this year, and part of the reason his outlook may be a bit bit cloudy or it may not improve in the short term, certainly, is that Gerardo Parra has been absolutely killing the ball uh, since he got activated from the DL. uh, 14 RBIs in nine games, uh, seven multi-hit games in that process. Uh, Recent stretch has brought his already great season numbers up to 341 batting average, 299 expected batting average. Eight homers, 42 RBIs, and 175 at bats. So, you know, I got to take a guy like that out of the lineup. So, through no fault of his own, Romeo Tapia has been sent down to make room on the roster for uh, on the active roster, and he'll look to build on the success he had at the major league level this year. He hit 314, uh, two homers, nine RBIs, 20 runs, three stolen bases, and 102 at bats. So, if Blackmer were to miss any time at all, uh, Tapia could come back and claim those at bats. Uh, and there have been interesting and conflicting reports about what the team plans to do with David Dahl, who is uh, major league ready, sitting down there in the minors, uh, spent the better part of the year on the DL, recovering from a rib issue. Uh, Manager Bud Black was misquoted as saying that Dahl would spend the rest of the year in the minors, and then later clarified that and said that uh, Dahl could, in fact, see some time with uh, the Rockies this year, depending upon how he performs at AAA. Uh, and Dahl has uh, shown, shown any not shown any rush at all so far in his rehab assignments, uh, hits in six of his first seven games, one home run, a triple, eight RBIs in his first 25 at-bats, so the rock. needless to say, the Rockies are sort of loaded in the outfield at the moment.
0: And I know that real baseball and fantasy baseball are not perfectly aligned here, but if I was in this situation that Colorado's in as a fantasy owner and all of a sudden I have all these outfielders, they're all productive, I've got uh, David Dahl coming back from the DL possibly, uh, adding to the mix, wouldn't I consider as a fantasy owner the possibility of trading one of my excess outfielders to shore up? maybe somewhere a little less strong. There's certainly teams out there, for instance, Arizona, of course, they don't want to trade within the division, but there are teams out there that could use an outfielder. And it seems like maybe Colorado should be looking at an opportunity to move one of these excellent outfielders to somebody to get something that they can actually use instead of like putting more guys on the bench and taking away playing time.
2: Yeah, you know, that's certainly something that they could could consider doing. Uh, But the the other thing you've got to look at at the major level is contracts and when do these guys' contracts expire and do you want to bring them back and, and that sort of thing. So uh, certainly they're not going to trade the younger guys, uh, and, and who knows what uh, a guy like Carlos Gonzalez might bring in a trade uh, at this point in his, in his career with the way he struggled this year. So it's one of those things where you've got to consider what you might get back, uh, and, and you've got to think about things down the road as well, I think.
0: In the Batting Buyer's Guide, columnist Stephen Nickrand at BaseballHQ.com took a look this week at hitters whose batting average and power seem to be out of alignment with their skills in those departments. And one of the names on his list was uh, the Dodgers' surprising second-base outfielder uh, Chris Taylor. Ten home runs, 11 stolen bases in the first half. That sounds pretty good to me, but what's the risk that Taylor will come apart at the seams?
2: You know, one of the important things, I think, about Baseball HQ is that we look at the underlying stats and what's going on Beneath this kind of uh, this kind of an outburst for a player like Chris Taylor and there really are a whole lot of warts that make Chris Taylor risky for the second half it doesn't mean he's going to fall apart it just means there are some potential holes there that could be that could be problematic his 263 expected batting average 85 expected power index both profile him as a uh, subpar contributor at the plate this is not a guy that's, that should be hitting the way he's been hitting um, he could continue to have value, used in the right situation, used in small doses. Uh, he really hits lefties well. Uh, his batting eye is actually better against them, uh, against uh, lefties, than it is against righties. A .50 batting eye, so uh, and a thousand OPS against lefties. So this is the kind of guy that I think you use in particular situations. Uh, but I would not want him as a as a fantasy owner as my primary for example, second baseman heading into the, remaster, the remainder of the season.
0: Well, Nick, we say this all the time uh, with these young players, especially baseball is a game of adjustments and the opposing pitchers adjust to Taylor and his challenge is going to be to adjust back to the pitching. So far, I have to say, Nick, uh, it's very early in the second half yet, but it looks like he's maintaining his first half momentum, 50 at bats or so since the break. He's batting 440. He's got an 1113 OPS, another home run, two more bags, uh, are we still really concerned that this is a, a problem here or is he could he be one of these guys who outperforms well, his skills one of those type of things what's the what's the deal with this continued good performance despite poorish skills
2: well you know I, again i think we have to say we're, we're looking at a small sample size uh, at this point but uh I, you know i i ultimately for me the skills uh the skills come into play uh and and so many times i've seen and i, I know you've seen as well uh, a guy like this where where everything is going really well, and then everything just falls off the table. So, just be aware. I think that that could happen with Chris Taylor.
0: I agree with you about that. And uh, if I was a Chris Taylor owner, now would be the time I think to sell. He comes out of the, comes out of the break uh, scorching hot and. Uh that's the time to trade a guy if you're worried about his his outcomes catching up to his skills. Uh, finally, Nick, as you know, I ask our feature guests every week to name some of their thumbs-up and thumbs-down players for the rest of the season. And I have to say, there seems to be quite a consensus building the last few weeks that among National League pitchers, the thumbs down is going to Washington left-hander Gio Gonzalez, despite a $21 value at the All-Star break. 286 ERA, uh, 123 whip, looks pretty good, got a lot of wins. Steven Nickran looked at pitchers in the buying guide column, uh, looking at anomalies in hit rate, strand rate, and homer per fly ball rate. So how does Steven rate Gio Gonzalez's chance of maintaining that great first half?
2: Not good, uh, because the the underlying skills beneath what he did in the first half are not all that strong. Uh, a 27% hit rate, an 82% strand rate, um, only a 74 BPV. We'd like to see that a bit higher. Uh, and, and the problem with Gonzalez is there's a lot of control downside. Uh, only a 53% first pitch strike rate, a 43% ball rate. Uh, this guy's not throwing strikes at the rate that you want him to. Uh, and so you look at that and say that it's, one day the luck is going to run out.
0: You know, that's a curious thing about Gonzales. Uh, uh, in the fir- last three even-numbered years, his base performance value has been a little bit over 100, 101, 102, 103, and that's excellent. That's the kind of base performance value we s- expect to see from ace-level pitchers. But his dollar values, $28 in 2012, down to 9 in f- 2014, and just $3 last year, despite maintaining that very high skill level. Then you look at the odd years, his base performance values are um, 74, 87, 92, 70 still good but not as good and his dollar values 15 11 3 21 this seems weird to me nick what does it say to you about the connection between those skills and those
2: values (laughs) that's a a good question and i think it's i think it says a lot i mean you know one of the one of the really iffy things for me in fantasy baseball is projecting pitchers um they they vary so much in terms of of how their performance corresponds to those dollar values. Wins, for example, is a hugely elusive category. Uh, you never know. That all depends. That doesn't depend sometimes as much on a single pitcher as it does upon their bullpen uh, and upon the offense that's supporting them. Uh, and a lot of the dollar value certainly goes into wins. So if you've got a team like Washington that's tearing the cover off the ball and winning, then that's going to inflate the dollar value of all of their pitchers. So, uh, you know, it's one of those things that, um, for, for me, there are very few pitchers out there that you can rely on season in season out to deliver Chris Sale, Clayton Kershaw, maybe another two or three that you could put on one hand. And after that, when I'm looking at pitching, I tend to play the hot hand along with good skills.
0: So you combine the momentum with the, uh, with the reliability. Sounds like a stock portfolio.
2: Yeah, that probably that, that it is indeed. And I, you know, I'm I'm very cautious for example about trading hitting for pitching because uh pitching especially especially starting pitching is so elusive in terms of uh, a guy being able to to perform consistently all through the year. Uh a good example last year, Steven Wright was really hot at a point last year and a good guy to own, but he didn't stay hot the entire season and a good guy to get rid of into the second half.
0: Now, here's the interesting thing. Of course, if you get a lot of wins, your value is going to be enhanced if you're a starting pitcher. And in 2012, as I mentioned, that was a $28 peak for Gio Gonzalez. He had 21 wins that year. He also had a nice 340 earned run average, a 113 whip. So he was full value, a fair number of strikeouts too, I believe, over 200. So he was a good pitcher that year. There's no no doubt about it. But in all these other years, with with his base performance value, um, what's the word, Uh, yo-yoing, with his base performance value yo-yoing up and down between 70 and 100, his wins were 11-10, 11-11, and his value was flying around all over the place because his ERA was up and down, his whip was up and down. I think it's just very curious.
2: Yeah, it is indeed. It is indeed. I, you know, It's one of those things that's it's hard to get a handle on. Uh, I, I, my, my sense about Gil Gonzalez is uh, he's a guy I would have liked to have had on my roster in the first half, but I'd be really leery of him in the second half and watching every start to see if he's a guy I want to keep running out there.
0: The projection for Joe Gonzalez at Baseball HQ, 4 ERA, a 123 whip, which is not bad. And you got to I know we're not supposed to chase wins Nick but if you're going to chase wins or if you're going to at least consider wins you don't mind having a guy on a team like Washington which is scoring runs by the bucket full and they just shorted up their bullpen as we've talked about maybe Gio Gonzalez uh, might be a guy if you're if the owner in your league is a little worried about him because of all this uh, skills talk maybe it's if you need a gamble you could do worse
2: You probably could and Gio Gonzalez if you're going to chase wins is certainly one place to do it
0: and one last thought I had while, while uh, we were talking about this, Nick, is uh, we tend to attach a certain amount of validity to the fact of a season. So we say Gio Gonzalez in 2012 for the season was $28, and the next year for the season he was $11 and so on. But John Bernson, uh, a mutual acquaintance of ours from BaseballHQ.com in years past, told me once that uh, the whole idea that a season it represents a long-run thing or a large sample thing is just wrong that a season is just an arbitrary set of uh, six months, and that if you take any other six months during a, a span, you're going to get all kinds of different results fluctuating around some kind of average. And so it turns out that maybe in 2012, Gio Gonzalez goes for $28, then in 2013 for 11 Chances are his true value was somewhere in the middle of those two things, and he was flopping around in, in any sort of 25-week period between those two extremes.
2: Absolutely. I mean, that's 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 what we deal with. And I uh, I, I think that um, you, you try to look for a guy who's going to be consistent all the way through the season, and there aren't many of them out there. It's true with pitchers. It's true with hitters. Clayton Kershaw, you can count him going out there and maybe surrendering one or two earned runs. Three, if he's got a really, really bad game, that's consistency. But most other guys aren't going to get there, whether they're hitters or whether they're pitchers.
0: It's uh, what makes the game fun, though. We'd like to be able to say with great certainty that this will happen and that will happen, but that would take a lot of the fun out of it.
2: It would indeed.
0: All right, Nick, thanks very much for helping us out with the National League. We'll talk to you again in a week's time.
2: Thank you, Patrick.
0: Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and our man on the National League beat, low these many years here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, another busy week in the American League as well. Welcome back to the show.
3: Hi, PD. Good to be here.
0: A lot of news going on in the American League this week. The biggest news of all, of course, a big trade between the contending Yankees and the rebuilding White Sox. Most of the talent... Immediate MLB-level talent anyways goes the Yankees' way, as we'd expect. Uh, Todd Frazier, David Robertson, and Tommy Canely, they were all rumored to be going here or going there. I heard Boston, I heard Washington. They're all now in the Bronx. Matt Dodge covered it for playing time today, so let's start with Todd Frazier. At the very least, he looks to get a little boost in power from the change in parks.
3: Yeah, it's funny. Everyone uh, thinks that uh, old U.S. Cellular is, uh, uh, for, and it has been for a long time, uh, the AL's best uh home run park but recently it's been dwarfed by Yankee Stadium and and uh, Fraser gets a nice little 18% home run boost uh going to Yankee Stadium that's the net part effects we use at Baseball HQ he's also probably going to collect more counting stats that's a pretty good offense they have in uh in New York depending on his lineup position
0: That is a curious thing to watch. Uh, I noticed that Joe Girardi slotted Frazier in the two hole in his first game on Monday, then in the sixth slot, then the last couple of games he's been down in the seventh slot, which is not great news for Todd Frazier fans. Uh, What about in the field? He played left field and right field in his first three games, which surprised me a little bit, and then was back in his more familiar third base slot the last time I checked. I've heard conflicting reports. Uh, Jock, Frazier might end up playing first. He might be a utility guy. Who's going to be playing where? Well,
3: um, it, it sounds like the announcement is that Fraser's going to take over the the uh, everyday third base job, uh, pushing Chase Headley across the diamond, where he's going to take a crass course at first base. Even though he played, he's played a, a few games there since uh, since coming to the Bronx. I think 59 innings. Um, it looks like Hedley's going to take the strong side of the platoon with Garrett Cooper. Um, it it really uh, it, it, the pl- the platoon splits all kind of kind of work that way. Um, Cooper's at bats aren't aren't enough to make a call there as to how that's going to go. Uh not showing a lot of difference uh uh in his triple A splits uh, over over two hundred and seventy nine at bats. And I think the initial thinking is he should he should do badly he should do better than Headley uh uh in some of those lefty matchups. Uh but the Yankees might not be finished dealing. They could add another hot corner uh infielder. Making Headley the odd man at. Headley just hasn't been very good. He's hitting 257 with four home runs through 304 at bats.
0: I did notice that uh, I was wondering what the Yankees might do about uh, Headley's uh, platoon split against left-handers. He's uh, supposed to be a switch hitter, but he's at a 534 OPS against Southpaws. And that, I don't care if you're switch hitting or not, that's just really bad. So there looks like an opportunity for Cooper. Were you surprised at all that they didn't throw Jose Abreu into the mix coming out of Chicago? There's lots of rumors that he's on the block.
3: Yeah, no kidding. I think that would have been a, a little bit much for uh, for Chicago to get up. I, I, you know, I thought the return was decent. They got Blake Rutherford. He's a few years away, uh, but for what they're doing, uh, that's fine. Uh, I think the Yankees probably would have had to have given up a lot more. But uh, yeah, it almost makes sense that he would come over in a deal like this too, doesn't it?
0: Well, I think that ship has probably sailed, but definitely I think the Yankees would would at least listen to an offer for a decent first baseman, and there should be a few out there still uh, to come. I'm um, thinking of maybe guys in uh, certain franchises that are not playing that well. What about the two pitchers moving over? Uh, I'll be talking with Joe Sheen a little later about Robertson in particular, but what's your take on this uh, on the pitchers?
3: The thing that really hit me was that Yankee bullpen. I mean, they've got They've got five guys there that if you're in a deep league, strikeout league, th- those guys are rostered, uh, and and all of them could close games in uh, in certain circumstances. Obviously, Robertson owners are going to be unhappy. He's going to lose uh, the large majority of his saves potential uh, to begin with. Uh, he's got a role as Chap- Chapman ahead of him. Um, he's probably going to squeeze somewhere in between uh, Dillon Batonsas and Chapman, depending on who's pitching well at, at any time. Uh, he's going to relieve some pr- pressure on some of the incumbents who've both struggled in, in recent weeks. So we're not going to say that uh, Robertson won't get any saves going down the pike. Japman has actually been really bad over the past month. Uh, uh, it's been an abbreviated July, obviously, but uh, 4.26 ERA and 4.90 expected ERA, uh um, his swinging strike rate isn't quite what it used to be, and and there's been a lot of talk that some of this might be the result of his uh, late and postseason overuse last year. Butances has uh, really struggled over the last 31 days, Eight point three eighty ERA, 1.97 WHIP, uh, not counting his All Star game performance, 13 walks and 12, and three losses over his last 12 appearance. Uh, so Robertson right now is is the uh, plan B closer and if, and if Patances doesn't turn around quickly even Canley could jump in front of him as well
0: yeah Robertson is no stranger to late inning pressure situations 47 saves and 116 holds when he was a New York Yankee from 2008 to 14 so Joe Girardi going to be comfortable making that making that play uh, Tommy kaneley where does he fit in
3: you know, Canley of all the all five of the Yankee pit relievers that I really like, he has the best strikeout ratio of all of them. Uh, he's got a 98 mile an hour fastball. He's getting 64 uh, percent first pitch strikes and a dominance near 15. Uh, a lot of swing and miss in uh, in his arsenal. Um, I- i i really like canley and 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 that was the real kicker with this deal i know a lot of fantasy owners were holding him in hopes that robertson would be traded and of course now both of them were traded to a team with an established closer so um so a little bit irritating in that regard but uh, um, bottom line is uh, i could see uh, i could see a lot of these guys getting saves Uh, um, all of them including uh, chad green uh, are all options for uh, late inning work um, so it's it's going to be interesting to see what it does to the New York saves and who does well and who doesn't
0: it looks to me jock like the real impact of this might be when the playoffs start because the Yankees could ask their starters just to go five innings and then turn things over to this murderer's row of strikeout dominant guys in their bullpen meanwhile what's going to go on with the saves in Chicago with the loss of all that bullpen power
3: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I'm wondering whether it it really matters giving their rotation and their lineup and just the fact there's not going to be any save opportunities. The White Sox have announced, uh, surprisingly, in my opinion, that uh, new White Sox, Tyler Clippard, coming over in this deal. He's got an ERA of about five, and uh, his home runs and walks have gotten him in trouble this year. They're saying that Clippard's going to get the first shot at saves, but uh, baseball HQ and uh, I think both you and I like Anthony Swarzak a lot better. Uh, uh, 2.40 ERA to date, 4.5 command. Uh, uh, beyond this, nobody really knows longer term because the White Sox have a lot of good young arms that still need sorting through. They have Carson Fulmer, who most people think are going to is going to wind up in the pen. Um, he has a decent relief relief arsenal. Even Ronaldo Lopez, who has really turned it on in AAA. Uh, uh, no one's sure whether he will stick as a starting candidate or not. He would be a terrific candidate out of the bullpen longer term.
0: Staying in Chicago, and I don't think these moves are linked at all, but they did recall second baseman Joanne Moncada from A, and BaseballHQ.com was all over this one. Jock Rick Green covered the story for playing time today. Jeremy Deloney wrote about it in some detail in the Daily Call-Ups report. This call-up is obviously interesting in itself, but but is it at all related to the deal involving Frazier and the relief pitchers?
3: Yeah, I don't know. Only if only if you're you're thinking that uh, the the White Sox are trying to to uh, spike some interest in the team after the departure of uh, all of those players. Uh, um, obviously, Frazier's departure the departure opens up a, a slot at third base, and Matt Davidson, the DH, is going to get a going to get a crack at that, um, and. Uh, uh, Davidson, uh, the, the guys who'd been playing second base uh, have been yulmer uh, Sanchez, Tyler Saladino, and, uh, and Alan Hansen. Uh, and, and I mean, that was just, their replacement was uh, was basically on the board. It was going to come, you know, whether it came now or not. Mankata's going to get that role. Um, well, it, it might have just been a thing where it was time to play the kids to see if they could boost the offense with Frazier gone.
0: Yeah, I noticed uh, Sanchez got some of the early DH moves uh, early on. But I have to say, I think Moncada was clearly the key part of the haul that the White Sox got from Boston last year in the big Chris Sale sale. He, He started at second base on Wednesday, went 0 for 2 with a walk. Of course, we expect Moncada to play every day at second base, but how good is he?
3: Well, his numbers were more eye-popping last year. Uh, what did he steal? Uh, forty-five bases. He was, I think, he stole forty-five bases in fifty-seven attempts. Uh, he hit 15 home runs. Of course, that was between A and uh, and Double A. His numbers have 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 um, gone down a little bit this year. A lot in stolen base department. Uh, uh, Seventeen stolen bases in uh, 25 attempts. I think. Uh, he's hitting 282 at Triple uh, A with 12 home runs. There's a lot of projection in in Moncada. Um, he's probably a little better than this. Actually, uh, at his peak, uh, he's only 22. He's from Cuba. There's some there's some cultural uh, uh, um, association here that that he's probably dealing with uh, coming over. Um, switch hitter. Um, and uh, at his peak, I, a lot of people think he could be an ideal middle-of-the-order run producer who hits for both B.A., batting average and power, while posting a high on-base percentage and stealing a lot of bases. Uh, he's he's very aggressive right now. He, he probably needs some better pitch selection. He'll learn that, uh, hopefully. Uh, he's got very good bat speed. He can catch up to uh, all kinds of pitches. Uh, um, he's... It, He's got a leap potential. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if he achieves it.
0: Yeah, the uh, baseball HQ rating system calls him a 9A type of prospect. 9 means perennial all-star and A means a very high likelihood of him achieving that ceiling and uh, even if he doesn't quite make it he's still going to be very good especially the bat which sounds like it'll definitely play in the major leagues. W- what's his uh, status with the glove?
3: Um with the glove um uh I- yeah, he's got some things. He's got some things that uh, that he has to learn. Uh, he's still he's still working uh, uh, in at second base. He used to be a third baseman. Some scouts think he's uh, he's eventually going to move to third base. He's got a very good arm, so he's not a gold glove contender. But uh, he's he's improved his footwork and he's still learning. He, he's again he's a sol- he's a solid choice to become an elite player offensively, and he has a chance to be a better than average defender.
0: Yeah, I think the bat will play well enough that he doesn't have to be, you know, the second coming of uh, Bill Mazeroski out there with the leather to to stick at second base. And as you said, there's a decent chance he moves over to third. Certainly there's going to be an opening over there as well. Uh, Speaking of guys moving around the infield, uh, Carlos Correa in Houston is moving out of the Houston infield onto the DL, which is a pretty big problem for fantasy owners. Not so much for the Astros because they've got the big lead. I think they'll be able to take a lot of time, maybe even wait till the nearly the end of the season before they bring Correa back there's certainly no doubt that the Houston Astros are going to be in the playoffs uh, you wrote about this for playing time today how does the injury to Carlos Correa affect the Houston lineup for fantasy purposes
3: yeah you know you, you make a real good point in that uh, if they get Correa back in, uh, in mid-September which which is what they're expecting and and he can, uh, just get a tune up and be okay by the playoffs. This actually in a weird way might even help you, And They get a chance to work some more players and, and get some more playing time. Um, it immediately ups the, the, uh, playing time for Marvin Gonzalez, who really didn't, didn't need it. He was doing just fine playing two thirds, three quarters of the time. Obviously he's one of the surprise players of the year. Um, Nori Aoki and uh, Jake Marisnick are probably going to get more outfield time, given that Gonzalez is going to be moving from uh, getting a lot of at-bats in left field uh, over to shortstop and perhaps third base. Um, Colin Moran is a real interesting name here. This is a guy who used to be a, he was a number one pick uh, back from Miami, I think it was back in uh, in uh, 2013. Uh, it'll, it will They're going to work him in at third base, uh, so we'll see what happens there.
0: What do you know about uh, this uh, Colin Moran? He looks like an interesting guy.
3: He is. Uh, he, he's always hit for batting average. His plate skills have always been very good. He's a left-handed hitter with kind of a sweet swing. Uh, he'd only had average power before this year. Now, everything pretty much fell apart for him in 2016, and his prospect... Uh, 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 status really plummeted but this year he has he's just been terrific including the power he's uh, he's uh, put a little loft in his swing he has 18 homers he's posted a 916 OPS through 302 at bats Um his plate skills are back he has 31 walks 55 strikeouts so he's making contact uh, he's got a decent arm over at third base and as a left-handed hitter, he's going to get some playing time over at third base. So this is a guy who um, is going to get a chance to see if his his uptick is for real. It's it's almost make or break time for him. So uh, we'll see what Moran can do. But if I were a fantasy owner and I needed some help with the corners, I'd be all over Colin Moran right now, just out of the opportunity.
0: And just to be clear, Jock, suppose Moran does stick at third base, then the playing time losers would probably be Aoki and Marisnik, because Gonzalez would go back to getting more playing time in the outfield. Is that right? Absolutely.
3: Uh, Aoki and Marisnik are are never going to be... uh Every day, or most of the day, starters. Actually, I take that back. Aoki Aoki hits left-handed. And he's playing about half the time in left field. But you're talking about a guy with an empty batting average, uh, offering not much else, and certainly not much defense. So, yeah, both of these guys are kind of fringe players. They offer a little bit of something. Marisnik's obviously a good defender, and who's who's hit for a little power this year. He doesn't hit for much average. But uh, they would be the playing time losers if uh, if Moran can uh, can uh, be productive in the playing time he gets.
0: I spoke with Nick a few minutes ago about the big trade of J.D. Martinez to Arizona. Some big, important uh, ramifications for the Diamondbacks, but obviously there are going to be ramifications as well in Detroit, namely a gigantic hole in right field for the now-rebuilding Tigers. Tom Kephart covered this for Playing Time today. Any interesting stuff going on in the Motor City?
3: Yeah, not really, other than you look at their lineup now, and it's really just aging. Uh, Miguel Cabrera is having his worst year ever. Uh, Victor Martinez looks like uh, he's... Close to being done, frankly. Ian Kinsler's not playing very well. There's just no proven source of production to, to replace uh, Martinez. I've been looking at the lineups in Detroit for the past few nights, seeing names like uh, uh, Mikey Matuk and uh, Alex Presley, a blast from the past. Uh, um, Matuk could get uh, an extended trial as an everyday center fielder. Uh, uh, when Presley's getting uh, most of your right field playing time against right handers, uh, that's a problem. Now, Matuk is uh, uh, showing uh, interesting power and speed, uh, and he's he's making uh, good hard contact. But his, his plate skills uh, are are eventually gonna gonna narrow the gap between his two current two seventy batting average and his. 244 expected batting average these guys just aren't prospects really
0: well speaking of prospects are there any that Detroit might turn to in the uh outfield situation
3: yeah you've got Jacoby Jones who opened the season in center field for Detroit uh he's always been an interesting tools guy who's never put it together at the major league uh level Kristen Stewart is a is a big power guy uh uh, in double a a lot of swing and miss in his game he could see some late season uh, opportunities uh Jim Aducci's a journeyman he was fourteen for forty four as an early season replacement he he's he's also uh, up right now so um, um he'll get a few times he'll he'll get a few times through the lineup uh it's just uh I'm not seeing a lot of names that get my heart pumping here.
0: No. Uh, To say the least, Jock, uh, that's for sure. Uh, I imagine they're not exactly getting many hearts pumping in Detroit among the uh, fan base either, so that uh, it actually could get worse, I think. Detroit looks like they're in full-on rebuilding mode. There could be some of those names you mentioned. Uh, I've even heard Miguel Cabrera's name mentioned as a possible guy who could be leaving town via trade. Ian Kinsler's name is being bandied about. Not a lot of need for second baseman out there, but but uh, do you think the Yankees, we mentioned they might make a deal for a first baseman? How about Miguel Cabrera in pinstripes?
3: Yeah, hey, how about Miguel Cabrera as, as a Yankee in pinstripes? That would be interesting, too, just to see what it could do for uh For his year. The biggest problem with Cabrera is that contract and who's going to take it. And even the Yankees, I'm not sure they're going to want to take that contract given where Cabrera is now in his career. Although I'm not sure. I mean, he is showing some interesting signs. Uh, He's hitting the ball hard at least. Uh, His bottom line numbers just aren't very good. Uh, I think the contract is a problem.
0: Outside of Aaron Judge, I don't see anybody on the Yankees who's a better hitter than Miguel Cabrera, even the 85% uh, Miguel Cabrera or the 65% uh, Cabrera that we're seeing so far. Uh, uh, Jock, here's something that hardly qualifies as news, I suppose. Cameron Maben is on the DL and he's looking at, what, two to four weeks, I guess. He's got a right knee sprain in his, uh, one of his ligaments. Uh, you covered this story for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. What does left field look like for the Angels over the next few weeks with uh, Cameron Mabin once again on the shelf?
3: Yeah, it's, it's really been an interesting year in left field. Uh, uh, Mabin and Revere were battling for the job. Uh, Mabin always had the edge, and he actually had about a six-week run there uh, right around when Mike Trout went out, where he was just terrific. Uh, him and Eric Young, believe it or not, actually carried the Angels offense for a while revere uh has been one of the most unlucky players i've seen all season his contact rate's been up around 90 percent uh all year his his expected batting average has been around 280. he's hitting 225 which tells you a little bit of some of the hit rate luck he's uh he's uh, hit into he's got nine stolen bases to 169 at bats uh, he's going to get a final stab at uh, at left field i still think he's a nice speculation for stolen bases um maybe it'll be missed though i mean he played good defense he's got 25 stolen bases uh so uh um, it'll be interesting to see what happens when he gets back if uh if revere uh, uh can take advantage of this
0: time apparently the angels also called up shane robinson to take maven's roster spot anything to get excited about with shane robinson
3: No, i was surprised at that given what eric young had done uh previously in uh in trout's absence uh uh R- robinson has been an anemic major league baseball hitter at uh, uh, 227 batting average over 691 career at bats but then i looked at what he'd done in uh, at salt lake city uh, over the past month or so uh, he's been 44 for 108 since june 16th so the angels are clearly trying to catch something in a bottle here and hope that uh, that a torrid robinson can help spark uh what right now is a is a is a really bad offense. Uh, He's going to be the outfielder off the bench. He actually played right field the other night for uh, 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 Cole Calhoun, who's been slumping, but he's going to start out as the weak side of a left field platoon with Ben Revere.
0: And that could actually help Revere, who struggles a little bit on that same-side pitching. And finally, the surprisingly still playoff competitive Twins have apparently made a deal for a starting pitcher, not yet finalized. But reports say the Twins are going to acquire rental starter Jaime Garcia from Atlanta. I guess they're still dotting the T's and crossing the I's or whatever that saying is. But uh, if the deal gets done, what's going to go on in Minnesota?
3: Yeah, hopefully for the twins that will go through, because they they really do need something uh, to stay competitive. Uh, Phil Hughes just landed back on the DL, perhaps for the rest of the season, with a, uh, a recurrence of his uh, thoracic outlet syndrome. Uh, Bartolo Colon hasn't looked Good since his pickoff off the uh, FA list, uh, and was reportedly even considering uh, retiring. Hector Santiago's on the deal with back issues, so the the back of the Twins rotation is hurting. Um, plenty of opportunity for Garcia. There's not a lot of uh, not a lot of K's, not a lot of dominance right there. 6.9 uh, per nine innings, uh, but he's got a 55% ground ball rate. Uh, he's been pretty unlucky in uh, in home run fly balls uh, coming over from Atlanta. Um, but um, he's moving over to Target, which is uh, a lot better for uh, for fly ball for for fly balls, and uh, and it's probably a little colder than Atlanta, and and is going to probably get colder quicker in September. So he could he could do well in uh, in Minnesota.
0: I was going to say you think Minnesota is probably colder than Atlanta. What a news uh, What a news item that is.
3: Well, in the late summer, uh, believe it or not, Minnesota can get hot just like everywhere just, just like everywhere else can for about uh, six, eight weeks. And here we are, we're in July and August. But uh, I'd still rather be pitching there, I think, than Atlanta right now.
0: Yeah, the size of the park definitely helps. And uh, Minnesota's a good young team. Got a decent uh, outfield defense as well, although it's going to be more a ground ball infield situation for Jaime Garcia, assuming he comes over. I, I hope he does. He's a, been a good pitcher with some bad luck. I'd like to see what he can do pitching in a better situation jock thanks a million for helping us out we'll talk to you again in a week's time with more news from the american league
3: sounds good pd
0: jock thompson is the director of news and analysis at BaseballHQ.com and writes regularly for the site as well when we come back it's our feature interview joe sheehan from the joe sheehan baseball newsletter is coming up next on baseball hq radio
4: they're waiting for the numbers to change there it goes cal ripkin comes out raises his arm with a cap Here's the ovation
1: that he gets. Baseball HQ Radio.
0: Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our feature expert interview, and it's my pleasure to be joined by Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. Joe, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio.
5: Always good to talk to you, Patrick. How you doing?
0: I'm doing fine, thanks. How are you?
5: Good, good. Enjoying the season.
0: Me too. Uh, I'm especially enjoying Aaron Judge's performance this year. You wrote about him earlier this week, like he needs more superlatives. You noted that he's heading a historic pace, not in the way we obviously think with the home runs, but he has an interesting set of stats uh, beyond that.
5: Yeah, he's uh, putting up ridiculous numbers on contact. Um, uh, Obviously, it's a half-season worth of numbers, but when I did the numbers, he was hitting 500 on contact and slugging over 1,000. The batting average would be the highest ever over a full season. The slugging would be uh, third only to the Barry Bonds and Mark McGuire 70 home run season. So we've just never seen anything like this before. Uh, And there were concerns about Judge hitting uh, his strikeout rate. He's managed to keep that in line. He's cut that a lot from last year's rookie season. But it's what he's done on contact that's enabled him to put up league-leading numbers across the board.
0: How much should we discount these numbers because of the supercharged offensive environment?
5: I don't know. I think you judge all players by the environment in which they, they perform. I think that you, you know, whether it's, you know, hitters, uh, pitchers in the 1960s or hitters or at the turn of the century or the 1930s, um, I don't know if discounting, so you adjust in terms of value and you compare everybody across a certain baseline, uh, but I, I don't know if I don't really like the word discounting. And I think we also have to get some, we don't know what this is until we get a few years behind it, beyond it. You know, you don't know what 80, 1987 is. Until you get through 1988 through 1992, and you kind of put that in perspective. So, I think at the moment we just kind of appreciate it for what it is. I know, you know, Sarris did a piece at Fangraft that uh, kind of took the leaderboards and kind of knocked them down to what the homer to fly ball rate was a couple of years ago. I think that's one way to look at it. But you know, basically, I, I don't think that Judge is a product of uh, what we call the you yeah, the the I don't, I don't like juice ball the the, the high offense environment. Um, any more than Yonder Alonzo or Ryan Zimmerman or any of these guys. So um, he's not a particularly special case when it comes to that.
0: Well, the reason I ask is I don't care how he fits in historically with barry bonds or mark mcguire although it's interesting that those are the two examples of of guys who have accomplished this kind of uh, especially the slugging percentage on balls in play but uh, it helps us try to figure out whether this rate is sustainable and i think that's the bigger question how much should we expect a regression to some kind of mean with these on contact stats
5: no question that there, we're going to see some regression from him in the second half. There's just, like I just said, there's very little precedent for anybody hitting 500 and slugging uh, 1,000 on contact. You know, When I talk about this, I would think about the Ryan Howard year in 2006, and even he hit, I mean, it was like, hit 404 with like a 900 slugging. Um, say, so you've got very few examples. Bonds, McGuire, there's some Sosa years on the list. There's like four Babe Ruth years on the list. Um, in terms of the greatest on contact seasons ever. So, um, you know, we've already seen it since the break. You know, his, his on contact numbers just slipped a little bit. You're hearing a lot of, you know, I believe it was, there was an article yesterday about did the, you know, should, is it too early to talk about the home run derby as a factor? And no, you know, the home run derby doesn't do anything to players. Um, but the likelihood that you're hitting well enough to get into the home run derby makes you a candidate for aggression anyway. So we're going to see some regression from Judge in the second half, but his game power is real. Um, I, I think the contact rate he's been able to manage. I say it's about a 30% contact r- strikeout rate. Uh, that's down from last year. It's actually roughly what he had in the minors. I, I'm not concerned about him getting to the power in game. I do think we'll start to see the outcomes slip a little bit. So, big picture, Aaron Judge career. I think you can look at him as a reliable source of power numbers. I think for the rest of 2017, you know there is some regression risk here. I think there, you know, if, if he ends up hitting, you know, 350 with a 750 slugging on contact, that's still really good, but you're not going to get the same numbers that you, you might have been counting on. In other words, I would say this is a great time to trade Aaron Judge.
0: I was going to ask, uh, I don't know, did you see the story in the New York Times either Sunday or Monday earlier this week, which was about Aaron Judge's adjustments that he made to his approach at the plate, to his uh, swing angle and so forth? And I wonder if you did uh, what you thought of it and if you didn't, what kind of credence do you put in these narratives that say that uh, the player gets should get more credit than maybe he is getting because he did make some changes in the way he approaches what he's doing out there?
5: The tab is literally open in my browser. I haven't had a chance to actually read the article yet. I can say that my my feeling about all of these types of stories is that every player is always changing something at every moment, uh, and at some point they're going to fall into something that in the next hundred at bats is going to you know turn them into a really good hitter or a really good pitcher. And, um I, I think you can always find that story with just about any player. Now, you know, we have so seen a lot this year about you know players changing their swing to gain more loft. You know the Yonder Alonso, Daniel Murphy stories. Uh, I think that's that that's real to some extent, but there are also players who changed their swing to gain more loft and didn't get a lot of result. We're not hearing as much about those. Um, in the case of Judge, you know, again, I'm, I'm talking about a piece I haven't seen, but what I will say is that you know my my general philosophy is that all players are always working on something, and it doesn't take you don't have to look that hard to find a change that is followed by you know a change in production. Um, to some extent, all of sports coverage is a big post hoc fallacy, but yeah. some of these are real, and and it just it's very hard to tease out what's real versus what's just. I made mean, the you know uh, uh, correlation not necessarily being causation.
0: Uh, We saw Aaron Judge a couple of years ago at the Arizona Fall League, the uh, first pitch Arizona Symposium put on by Baseball HQ. Uh, Call that a plug if you like, but it's a lot of fun. Uh, And at the time, Aaron Judge looked like that big looping swing was attached to that big looping body. And uh, the, the knock on him was at the time that he was just too easy to beat inside because his swing was so long, but he seems to have beaten that. Is that an example of the kind of change you're talking about?
5: Yeah, and I remember seeing him a couple of years ago. I just wasn't oh, I wasn't sold on him at all. Even you know Patrick, you look a year ago, and he wasn't really hitting that well at AAA. Of course, he had the call up at the end of last year, and he struck out in, in half of his at bats. So you know this isn't this is new, and this is a change. This is always a problem for big hitters. There are two issues. One is covering a very large strike zone because you know knees to letters on a guy like Judge is simply larger than it is on Jose Altuve, and it's getting the arms through for the pitch up and in. Um, and one of the things I think we've seen with Judge this year is a willingness and an ability to lay off everything that's, that's borderline. He's shown incredible patience this year, uh, waiting and waiting on his pitch. You know, the walk rate's been up, and really if you just look at the, the just the pitches that he's taken, he's just focused on getting on swinging pitches that he can get to. Um, so we haven't seen uh, a dramatic change in how he's approached. If anything, it's gone the other way. Instead of working him up and in, um, I saw a graphic this year. Uh, Jason Collette sent it out. I believe it was an ESPN graphic, where it showed that the Red Sox were working him almost completely on the outer half of the plate. Uh, so, if anything, teams are going the other way. They're not trying to tie him up inside. They're just going to go away, away, away. Now, you know it, Judge can get to that pitch, and Judge has shown you know prodigious opposite field power. So, it's interesting to see how the strategy will work, but. Um, I think that's he's got one of the markers that we look at for, for great right-handed hitters, which is the ability to hit for power the other way. You think about Piazza, you think about Sheffield, you think about uh, Stanton. These guys can all take the pitch out on the, over the outer half uh, out of the park. So you know, we'll see how uh, the, the cat and mouse develops. But uh, you know, it's interesting you mentioned the pitch up and in, because that seems to be where teams are not trying to pitch him at this moment.
0: Which seems weird to me. Uh, before we leave this subject, Joe, uh, I don't know Have you, if you've looked at the uh, heat maps and, and those kinds of things that give us some insight into where he's swinging and where he's taking. Uh, and I wonder, do you know or have you any inclination uh, as to whether that willingness to take the outside pitch on the on the borderline is causing him to take a lot of strikes that might not be the case otherwise?
5: Yeah, I haven't looked Patrick. I think it's an interesting question to see how his approach is going to develop as the the league adjusts to him. I mean, this is especially with a player who's essentially in his first season. Just the constant stream of okay, this works, this doesn't work. Let's try this against him. Let's try this. That's a rapid process for a player in his first year. So, I think that's one of the things to watch here in the early days of the second half is how do teams approach Judge now that you know he's the center of attention, particularly in that Yankee lineup.
0: Yeah, and. Uh It's also interesting, I think, to look at in 2016, how poor he hit against left-handed pitching versus this year, where he's pretty much even across the board. There's no platoon difference. Mind you, last year was a very small sample size, but uh, anybody who's looking for Aaron Judge to really suffer against uh, same-side pitching is probably going to be disappointed.
5: Yeah, I'd be really careful with that. As a longtime stride player, I, I know about how platoon splits can bounce around year to year, so I don't think there's, there's anything more than noise in those numbers, particularly how strongly they can be affected on, uh, on things like batting average on balls in play or home-to-fly ball that bounce around a lot. So you'll be real careful with it if you're going to plug those numbers in.
0: Especially now, 2017, he, I don't even think he's hit 75 at bats against left-handers yet, so there's going to be a lot of variation.
5: There was a story a couple weeks back about how Hailing Ramirez wasn't hitting lefties. Was like seventy five at bats, and he just hadn't had a homer yet. And it was like a, a thing. And uh, one of the writers went to Ramirez and said something to him. And Ramirez is just like, "So what? I'm going to hit lefties." And since then, I think Ramirez is like thirteen for twelve against lefties. So um, <laughs> they it just it, it, these, um, these especially, you know, in a game, you know, left handed pitchers are far less common than they were, you know, even when I was growing up, and you go back a generation before that. So the the sample size against lefties just keeps getting smaller and smaller.
0: The trade market is starting to heat up. It's one of the most important times in the fantasy season, of course. Also important in real baseball as we start seeing which teams think they have a shot and which teams don't. The White Sox and the Cubs got the real trading bazaar rolling with a big trade. uh, Prospects for immediate help. Jose Quintana goes to the Cubs, of course. Top prospects coming back, including outfielder Eloy Jimenez and right-handed pitcher Dylan Cease. First of all, how much do you think the deal helps Quintana?
5: Uh, goes to the weaker league, goes to a or probably maybe a tougher division. I think it, it helps him in terms of competitive level. And the American League is just so far ahead of the National League right now. Uh, the Cubs are not a good defensive. Well, they're a decent defensive team, but they're not as good as they were last year. They're better than the White Sox though, who haven't put a good defense on the field in some time. So I think those things are going to help Quintana uh, going from uh, US uh, Progressive Rate, whatever it's called <laughs> these, these days, uh, fields to Wrigley should help him a little bit as well. Uh, and then, of course, you know he just you know, he, he got he 's the same pitcher he was at the start of the year, really. Um, he had a pretty bad stretch of outcomes on his first 11 starts, but you know he's pitched well since the start of June. Uh, I think all of these things lead to Jose Quintana being an uh, incredibly valuable pitcher, not just this year but over the next few years. I, I thought it was an aggressive move for the Cubs, but I thought it was one that solved multiple problems for them.
0: Uh, Eloy Jimenez was a well-known top prospect before the season started. But in your coverage on Sheehan's Baseball Newsletter, you also said you like Dylan Cease, this pitcher that they got as well. He may not be as familiar to our listeners as Jimenez was. What's your take on Dylan Cease?
5: Yeah, he was, taking a, it was a six-round pick a couple of years ago, and then he immediately had Tommy John surgery. So really, he's just getting started in his career. And you know, he's been used as a starter. Um, he's a hard thrower. He's touched 100. He's actually touched 101. Uh, and I think the real question is going—is he going to continue to progress as a starter, or is he going to eventually have to be the, go to the bullpen? Um, we see a lot of these guys who just the third pitch never comes or the command never comes. You could see Dylan Cease as the closer for the next good White Sox team. It's really not that hard to see. I mean, that velocity is going to play no matter what. Um, he's, if you if you really want to kind of compare the two, you know, the, the, the White Sox picked up Michael Kopeck in the you know in the Chris Sale deal, and Dylan Cease is kind of like you know, uh, uh, a, a Michael Kopech starter kit where you know the velocity is there, but really not a lot of it, a lot else is. So he's a long way from Chicago. Um, there's a lot of development and there's a lot of decisions to be made about him, but you know, as a second prospect in a deal, it's a very good hit pickup.
0: It looks like the White Sox have done a pretty good job overall in the last couple of seasons using what trade chips they have to build their farm system and their major league club. Uh, they're getting ready to be something, I think. Uh, you went so far in your newsletter as to say, General Manager Rick Hahn has played his cards, and I'm quoting you here, perfectly.
5: How so? I'm not sure you could have done better for the Sale Eaton Quintana group than to essentially rebuild your farm system. Um, six of the, five of the top eight prospects in that system came in these trades plus uh, Luis Basabe, who's like 10th in their system. Um, this is an organization that hasn't drafted particularly well, um, and they basically been able to launch their farm system from the bottom 10 to the top 5 entirely through these trades. Uh, I think the absolutely max value, and at the time it traded Sale and Eaton, it was like, okay, well, now you've got to trade Quintana, and Han waited. He waited until there was a deal that he actually wanted to make here. So um, it, there was a lot of pressure on him to trade Quintana and get on with it. And I think by waiting, he created an environment. It's hard to see where he would have done any better than Jimenez and Cease over the winter than he did, you know, at this trade deadline. So I give him a lot of credit for patience here um, and, and for maximizing the value. And they now have two of the top five prospects in the game, and they got those entirely through trade. So uh, just a phenomenal, phenomenal move, uh, set of moves by Hahn, going uh, to take a couple years for the White Sox to see that value on the field. Jimenez is a few years away. and you know, we haven't even seen him in the majors this year. Kopech and Cease are still on the way. And they signed the Cuban, Lewis Robert. They've got last year's number one pick, Zach Collins. It'll be 2019 before those guys are ready to do anything in the majors, and probably 2020 before they're really ready to win in the majors. But when you look at the start of the next decade, you really do see the White Sox kind of taking the mantle from the Indians as the best team in this division.
0: Now, you say the White Sox have done this well. Have any other organizations over the last year or two, the current administrations, have a decent track record of handling these kinds of deals, whether buying or selling?
5: Well, I I think you look at what the Brewers have done. Um, You know, with trading Jonathan LeCroy, trading in the prior administration, traded Gomez. Uh, They've really built out their farm system. Uh, We've seen Lewis Brinson briefly this year uh, Luis Ortiz's the Miners. Uh, I really think David Stearns did a wonderful job, uh, kind of flipping his flipping value. And then, of course, you look at what David Stearns has done building out that rota- that that roster, getting all of these contributors, you know, relatively cheaply. Whether it was Tyler Thornburg for Travis Shaw, or signing Eric Thames, or trading for Hernan Perez, they, they've got a lot of good players. You know, one to three wing guys. Who really were free talent. And I think Steve Stern's a lot of credit. And of course, in New York, I think you got to give Brian Cashman. Nobody likes to give Brian Cashman credit because they have a $220 million payroll um, and they have all the money in the world. But when you look at the Andrew Miller trade, when you look at the Andrew, oh, oldest Chapman trade, that's two relievers. You know, a total of, you know, Chapman was 30, Miller's going to end up being 100, 130 innings of relief to bring back you know, Torres and, and Sheffield and Frazier and all the guys that got in those trades, I think gives Cashman a lot of credit as well. So um, in, ter- in terms of making these types of deals, Cashman, Stearns, and Hahn have all had a very good calendar year.
0: You said in your article at the Joshi and Baseball newsletter that it's going to be very hard to read the market until and unless certain teams sort themselves out. Which teams were you thinking of when you wrote that, and how do you think they're going to sort themselves out?
5: You've got that whole mess in the American League where it's just a whole lot of teams, you know, kind of hanging around 500 and not—they're not that good, but they're also close enough to a playoff spot that it becomes very hard to uh, to tell them to sell. You look at the Mariners who just got to 500 last night. You look at the Royals who are at the end of this cycle and kind of hanging around 500. You look at the Rangers who, you know, have a young core, but they have impending free agents like you, Darvish. It's uh, these teams are all in a position where if they were to, to sell, it'd be a really hard thing to, to pitch to their uh, fan bases. It's particularly hard for the teams in the American League West that have no chance to win the division. Like if you're the Mariners or the Rangers or the Angels, the only thing you can hope for this year is the wild card. And philosophically, it's very hard to make, to, to buy, if your only path to the playoffs is the wild card, because you're essentially you know, trying to get to what amounts to a 3 to 5% chance to win the World Series. Uh now we've seen it done. You know, the Royals and the Giants two year, three years ago made the World Series out of the wild card slot. But um it's hard to give up real assets if that's your only path to the playoffs. It's different if you have a path to the playoffs with a division title.
0: I like the way you put it in your newsletter. You said a chance of a chance of a chance, which sounds about right.
5: That's and that's that's the Rangers this year. So you know we're we're still, you know, uh, thirteen days out from the deadline and it's one of those things where, you know, a six game winning streak here or a six game losing streak here is gonna move some of these teams. Even you look at the National League, where uh, you know the the Rockies have played just poorly enough, where you start to put the the Braves, the Cardinals, the Pirates into a position where maybe they can think about the wild card. So, uh, you know these stories are going to change a lot over the next couple of weeks, and I think it's the way it has to be. I think that you know this is what you know this is ceiling ball, right? Which is you know play 500 for four months and then make a big trade, get to 88 wins, and get hot in October.
0: Because there are so many teams jockeying for position in these wild card races, do you think there's going to be a first mover advantage for the first of those teams that says, you know what, either we don't really think we have a chance, or we have a chance to get there, but we'll only lose anyway. Let's be the first ones into the into the pool and maybe get the best deal out there.
5: Well, the first mover was the Cubs, and it'd be hard to say that they got any kind of deal for Quintana. I mean, as much as we can defend it from the from the Cubs standpoint, they play, they paid a pretty penny in Jimenez fees. So I don't know if that's the advantage. The biggest advantage is that you get the player for longer. If at the start of August, you're going to get 10 or 11 starts from a guy. By trading for him three weeks earlier, you get an extra three to four starts. I mean, it's getting an extra 20 to 30% of value out of a Jose Quintana or anybody else you might trade for. I think the years ago, the Carlos Beltran trade happened on, like, June 29th. So the Astros got an extra month of Carlos Beltran. Your, your advantage is simply that you're getting more of the player. Um, as opposed to necessarily a pricing difference.
0: But what if you're the selling team? Is there an advantage to being the first in to make your selling deal to get the best prospects that are out there? I don't know what the historical path has been.
5: No, I I think we'd like to think that as we get closer to the deadline, teams get a little more desperate, but I'm not sure that's necessarily ever been borne out because what happens is you're working on a deal and then the team either makes a trade the other way or they call up somebody who goes nuts for two weeks or, they fall out of the race, so there are so many unknowns in terms of you know waiting teams out. That I think there's a lot of risk there. I mean, because for a lot of these teams, the asset disappears on on, on August 1st, and yeah, you, know, you can make a waiver trade, but those have become much harder to make in August now. So there's a lot of risk if you're a seller that you just have a, an asset evaporate in your hands. I think there's more risk to the seller than there is to the buyer.
0: And finally, Joe, what do you think is the over-under for, we'll call them fantasy-relevant players? How many fantasy-relevant players do you think will be traded by the deadline?
5: Well, I'm defining the deadline as back to the all-star break, so we'll include Quintana in this. I I think this will be a relatively busy year. I think you're going to see maybe seven or eight guys. I don't know how many will cross leagues, um, which is important for teams that might be hoarding their fab, but um, I think it'll probably be seven, eight guys. You look at uh, Quintana having been traded, you look at the probability that a, a, a JD Martinez is traded. You look at, you know, in deeper leagues a guy like Brad Hand is probably rostered for strikeouts and in you know, some leagues for holds. Uh, you look at the possibility that the uh, the A's trade Sunny Gray. I think seven to eight is the right number. I think we're going to see a pretty active deadline.
0: You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. And Joe, uh, in one of your regular inside the box pieces, you put those out regularly looking at the previous night's box scores as a springboard into larger topics oftentimes. uh, You said that the Brewers being five and a half games ahead going into the break was the biggest surprise of the year for you. What do you think their chances are of surviving the stretch, making the playoffs as a division winner or a wild card, I guess? And what should they be doing now to get ready for then?
5: I want to say that uh, it's basically a coin flip. There's a coin flip at the trade at the at the All Star break. They have a five and a half game lead at the All Star break. That's a big lead. It's a hard lead to blow. But we still look at the, the Cubs as being inferior. Excuse me, the Cubs as being superior to the Brewers. I think that talent difference is, is significant and real. Um, I actually have a, a right before the All Star break. I made a side bet with a friend of ours, Scott Pianowski, uh, Pianowski of uh, Yahoo Sports, and we've got a uh, box of titleists. Riding on the earth, he's got the Brewers, I've got the Cubs. So, And that was it even, he did that straight up. So I think it's fair to say it's roughly a coin flip. I saw a poll online, not that this is scientific, but just go with it, um, that basically ha- about half the people thought the Brewers would win, half the people thought the Cubs would win. Um, I think the betting line now is, pretty, is roughly even. If you go to places that post the odds for the division winners, um, they see it as roughly even as well. So, um, I again, the, the lead matters. We underestimate how hard it is. It's, to uh overcome even a five and a half game lead because we remember the teams that do overcome those leads right the teams that come back from a five and a half seven and a half game deficit at the all-star break are the ones that go down in history we don't remember the team that had a five and a half game lead at the break and won the division by four games so i think we over we, we 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 forget the fact that a significant lead with 70 games to go is meaningful with that said, I do think the Cubs end up catching the Brewers. I just think they're the better team. I think the Quintana trade is probably about as good a trade as anybody going to make the deadline in terms of improving their team, uh, whether it's Overall, a good trade. We can debate, but um, Quintana is an enormous upgrade over the fifth starter spot for the for the Cubs, which had been Eddie Butler and Mike Montgomery. I Man, it's like a three win improvement. So um, that's as, that's as big a trade as you can expect to make at the deadline. Um, I don't know that the Brewers are in position to add that kind of quality unless they want to, you know, trade the, the very best prospects they have. One of the things Keith Laws made this point a couple times: the best prospects in the Brewers system are not having good years. So it's not like they have they can say, okay, here's our He's, he's a really good prospect, and he's having a really good year. Uh, it, it becomes a harder sell when your prospects are having off years. So all things considered, I think the Brewers are going to end up being like the Twins two years ago, where they put up a good fight for 100 games and they end up you know, at 83 or 84 wins when all of a sudden.
0: I saw an article somewhere, not on the Joshian Baseball Newsletter, I hasten to add, uh, that recommended the Brewers trade Jonathan VR for some help, uh, uh, hoping that they can find a GM out there who believes that last year is more real than this. What do you think?
5: Uh, I think that baseball is not fantasy baseball. And, you know, VR's basically had the one big year. Uh, he's 26, and, you know, there's some value there. But he's – I don't see a general manager trading, say, a starting pitcher, which is what they need uh, for VR, whose like, fantasy value is substantially higher than his real-life value and who has a greater track record of being, you know, a backup infielder, a utility infielder than he does of being a starting middle infielder. So uh, – I understand the argument. You know, Eric Sogard has played well for them. Uh, you can play Hernan Perez at second base, uh, but all things I really think they're better off just holding on to VR, playing him. He provides bench depth. I actually like VR as a uh, fourth infield. You know, we ended up talking about him a lot at the uh, first pitch Arizona last year. He was one of the guys on the panel, and uh, I think I was comparing him to Gene Segura. And for me, Segura was clearly the guy because he just had a more reliable record of, of being a good player. So. Um, I think VR, again, still just 26, can still bounce back and have some value. And I think trading him at his low point isn't going to
0: help anybody. In discussing Clayton Kershaw in one of your Inside the Box reports, uh, surprisingly not the best pitcher in the game this year, statistically at least, and you were talking about wins and you wrote, uh, and I quote, the problem with wins with any stat usually isn't the stat, but how we use it, leaping from the number to a narrative based on that number. I thought this was a really interesting comment, Joe. Explain what you meant
5: we decide that guys who have a lot of wins have some special ability to win games, the Jack Morris argument. We decide that players with a lot of RBIs have some special ability to drive in runs, the million guys argument. And really what it is is these are accounting stats that go back 130 years that were never designed to help us divine character from a number. Um, and I say this for pretty much all stats. You know, the problem with most statistics isn't the statistic, isn't the statistic itself. It's just a number. It's just a, an accounting measure, or it's just a metric. It's us reading into it. You know, we decide that guys with a lot of saves have some special ability to get the last three outs of the game. And really, it's just about usage patterns. So you can... I don't mind writing about wins or RBIs because I think those numbers are important for connecting the players we see today and the numbers they generate to 150 years of baseball history. I've got no problems using wins or RBIs. I think it's interesting, and I think it's fun trivia. It's when you jump from that to well, this player's better than this player because he drives and runs that we you lose me. We know that RBI counts are largely slugging percentage and opportunity, so there's no reason to decide that character is also part of it. So I got no problems writing about wins. It's just I do think it's interesting to look at the patterns throughout history. You know, I mentioned Clayton Kershaw. You know, they're just it, it, 20 win seasons have basically disappeared. You know, it used to be 25 win seasons were like special and you know 30 and then 25 and you know now 20 wind seasons are about as rare as 25 wind seasons were you know a generation ago and uh it's just the, the usage pattern so i think recognizing that is also part of understanding usage patterns throughout history
0: just so i'm clear is the problem that the coverage gets the narrative incorrect or is the problem that there actually is no narrative and we're just making it up
5: the latter. Uh, you know, there's nothing to the, you know, wins are a number. Uh, you know, we created this statistic 140 years ago, uh, and somewhere along the line we decided that it meant more than it actually did. And really, there's no meaning to it. It's just, you know, if you want to know how good a pitcher is, there are a thousand ways to figure that out. Wins are a really bad way to do it. And by using wins, because it's the word win and we get excited about it, uh, you end up jumping to conclusions that you've had no business jumping conclusions to. And this applies to the batting average. This applies to RBIs. This applies to saves. It's the narratives we create around the numbers that are wrong, not the numbers themselves.
0: Are there narratives that we can more fruitfully or more accurately create depending on using better stats, if we use uh, runs created or if we use some of these more advanced stats, do you think it's more reasonable to create narratives that say this player is better than that player because he's got more uh, runs created or higher Woba or, or one of these more advanced stats, or is it still a case of attaching a narrative that, be, that suits our human need for narrative at the expense of what the stat is actually telling us?
5: Well, take it out of the context of is better than and just think about you know, players themselves. And this is where I think we're getting really interesting stuff out of the, the modern data sets where we learn things like, okay, these players have changed their swing to create more loft. That's enabled them to become better players. We now know that you know, pitchers can change. You know, well, spin is, is, is kind of a... Yeah, we know that pitchers have a certain amount of spin they can impart on the ball that makes them a good pitcher. Um, I, I think there are a lot of things like this. You know, the Rich Hill story where Rich Hill was out of baseball, and then Brian Bannister basically said, just throw your curveball all the time. And lo and behold, Rich, Rich Hill became a really good pitcher. Um, I like narratives that are based in, in reality. I don't like narratives that get to, I'm going to divine your character from the way you play baseball. I'm not one for finding character in the scoreboard. I'm really not. Um, I don't really ever believe that the, that the team that won one, because it was better people. Or a player is better than player at why because he's a better person. I like the stories that we're learning now about how players change who they are as players. We can actually measure that as opposed to just listening to the stories about it and seeing how that turns up on the field. I think it goes both ways. I think we can see the decline of players. You know, in things like, you look at, the there was a thing in MLB the other, <clears throat> excuse me, maybe last month about sprint speed. And down at the bottom, you've got Alex Gordon well, Alex Gordon is not the player he was a couple of years ago, and maybe this is part of the reason, because he can't run anymore. So uh, I am I think the new data sets that we're getting about players drive stories about players that are really fascinating. And, you know, you look at the writers out there, Mike Petrello at MVP uh, and, and Matthew Leach at MLB. You've got Eno Saris and Travis Sawcheck at Fangrass. I mean, there are people who are using this data to tell some really interesting stories.
0: I remember a few years ago that uh, somebody was comparing one player A to player B, and it was across um, years or across – eras if you like i believe it was a barry bonds versus somebody situation and they were using war as the as the measuring stick and uh i'm sorry i don't remember the exact details because this just come to me but i remember your one of your responses at least was this is a complete misuse of how war should be handled in telling what's going on here and do you remember that and and what, what is the proper use of war
5: i'm afraid i don't i like war for careers i like it for studies you know, if I want to, I like it as a one number thing to say. Okay, if I want to look at all shortstops, or if I want to look at you know all right-handed pitchers, or if I want to look at players over time, I think it's useful. I think when you get down to granular player versus player, pretending that a five WAR difference over the course of his career of uh, a career is is the be all end all is a bit of a mistake. A five WAR difference over the course of a season, yeah, I mean that's it, you know burden of proof. Uh, I, any conversation that just comes down to one number is probably going to be flawed. So, you know, comparing player X to player Y, the conversation is just going to be more interesting if it goes beyond one number. If it takes everything into consideration. Um I think if you're using WAR, and, you know, I'm not saying that I'm not above occasionally saying, well this guy had 80 WAR and this guy had 70 WAR and you know that's a big difference and that's got to mean something. Uh, but by and large, you know, WAR should be the start of the discussion, not the not the end of it.
0: And so I notice that you routinely, when you're talking about, for instance, just a moment ago, we were talking about how the Cubs had improved, and you said Jose Quintana is like a a three win player, and that's better than what they have that in the guy that he's replacing. That seems to me like a case of using the statistic to support an an independent thesis, to offer evidence in support of a thesis rather than to say the stat itself is the thesis. yeah, it's it's three
5: win player is shorthand for okay. Jose Quintana is going to throw eighty innings and allow X number of runs and work this deep into games. Eddie Butler was going to throw sixty innings and allow this many runs. That's not very conversational. It's three win, a three win gap is the way of getting to that. If I'm going to write the argument, um, and I've done this before, where I say, okay, this is what this player is going to do. This is what this player would have done. Here's the subtraction. Uh, I think, but I do think that you need a way to have conversations about it. I think war. I, I prefer, where possible, to use the word win instead of war, in part because it gets me around well, which war are you using. Right. Um, but in part because I think wins are something people understand, as opposed to saying war. So, again, a lot of this is conversational and, and communicating the idea as opposed to necessarily showing the math. Uh, and that's the way you know, I prefer to use why. I really, I, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that, in part because the error bars around a single-season, or half-season estimate is pretty wide. When I say Jose Quintana is probably going to make the Cubs three wins better. It's entirely possible he's going to make them one win better. It's entirely possible he's going to make them five wins better. We're just not so good at predicting ten weeks of performance that, any of that, that we can narrow that to a range. Three wins is the middle of a very wide range.
0: And as long as the reader slash listener slash conversation partner understands that, I think that's really important that sometimes when we read baseball coverage, especially in the fantasy baseball community, the the information is presented with a degree of certainty that it really doesn't deserve.
5: There's a balance between entertainment and communicating the idea and being true to the analysis. That's very hard to, to do. And a conversation I'm gonna have with you on a baseball HQ podcast is probably gonna sound different than a conversation I might have on WFAN. Or a conversation I might have if you know I go on you know, I used to do this show on NBC Sports Network, which is really more of a general sports program. I've gotta tailor my explanations and my language to the different audiences. I'm going to write something differently in the newsletter that I'm going to write in Sports Illustrated, the magazine, that I'm going to write in The Athletic Chicago. It is critical to remember your audience. So if I do use shorthand with you, it's in part because I'm talking to you, Patrick, who is an analyst and and a a radio host and a fantasy player and and a a top-of-the-pyramid baseball fan, and I'm I'm speaking to an audience that's largely comprised of those people. Um, if, If I were having this conversation on a different podcast, I'd probably use different language.
0: Well, I hope you wouldn't say, Jose Quintana will make the Cubs better, even if it's to a very general audience. It still seems like a fairly dodgy proposal.
5: I'd like to tell you, I mean, I'm giving you the big speech, but honestly, I'd like to tell you that it's, it's really more art than science. It's really more feel. It's, I've been talking baseball, and I'd say on the radio, but TV, radio, podcast for 20 years, and you just kind of, it's just something you do without thinking.
0: You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. And Joe, your analysis of the Baltimore Orioles pointed to their starting pitching, which we'll get to in a second. But first, you pointed the finger at the Orioles superstar third baseman Manny Machado as the source of a lot of their difficulty. Why Manny? Well, he just doesn't hit.
5: Um, you know, he, he, this is a guy who was coming into the season one considered one of the five or six best players in baseball he having the worst year of his career at the time i wrote he had a a 700 ops it's gone up a little bit since then um and it's really interesting because he's not there's not you when you dig into the numbers there's not a lot of difference strikeout walk rates are basically the same as past seasons uh you know his homer fly balls down but you know that number bounces around um, he's actually hitting more ground balls, which is a strange thing. As a player gets older, usually it's the ball in the, in the air more. And There's an odd quirk in that his exit velocity, you know, one of these new stat cast numbers, is actually up over last year. But when you look at a different data set, it shows that his line drive rate is actually down from last year. So to some extent, i am kind of thrown up my hands and saying, okay, so he's hitting the ball harder in the air, but he's hitting fewer line drives. Um, if you look at the, the stat cast number for Barrels. And Barrels is basically, you know, oh, he hit the ball really hard. He really squared it up. Um, he's got one of the highest numbers in baseball. So there's a real disconnect among all his numbers. And this is where you kind of, you know, how do I make sense of the output numbers are bad, but the contact numbers are better, and, you know, the strikeout walk data is about the same. So to me, I looked at the numbers, and I think Machado's in for a pretty good second half. Uh, but in part, that's just counting on the talent to, to kind of carry the deck. Uh, it's it's interesting when you go in and you expect to say, okay, I guess he's not hitting the ball much harder, and you find out that
0: he actually is. He is hitting it harder. Uh, we use a stat called hard contact index, which combines contact with hardness of hit, and his contact rate is virtually identical to last year, but his uh, hard contact index is up about 10 points, and that's all got to be on hardness of hit. I think that the, the big difference that you identified is 6% more ground balls uh six percent fewer line drives even if you're hitting it hard you're going to see some poorer outcomes based just because you're grounding the ball and given what they know about positioning and stuff now hitting the ball hard on the ground just means it gets to be an out a little faster
5: right and that's you know ground, the ground ball is death. and that's actually one of the other things that it's driving the uh the i guess what we'll call the the revolution here is that hitters have learned that Teams can defense ground balls much more easily than they can defense balls on the air. and Nobody's come up with a, a way to defense balls over the fence yet. So, uh, uh, you know, Machado's been a victim of that. And like I said, I'm pretty confident. Machado's actually hit better since I wrote the piece. And, you know, I guess we'll get to it later. But I, I really am, am pretty uh, bullish on Machado down, uh, down the stretch.
0: So you don't buy the argument that I've seen that he should be traded while the trading is good to help the O's retool and rebuild?
5: No, I made that argument. I, I think he should be traded because the orioles he's not going to play in a playoff game in Baltimore. He's played in his last postseason game. Uh, the Orioles have no chance to get there this year. They have I mean, they're actually outplaying. They're, they're one of the worst teams in baseball. They've actually outplayed their uh, underlying performance. Um, and there's very little chance that they can build enough of a team around Machado next year. They basically need a new rotation. So uh, I would absolutely trade Machado. It's a year and a half left in the sweet spot because the team's getting two pennant races, and they're getting a year and a half to convince the player to sign with them. So this is absolutely the time to trade Manny Machado. And now they're not going to. They're basically looking to trade everybody but Machado, which is a really strange way to go about it. Um, but there's there's no question in my mind that they, they should trade Machado. They're just not. We've seen the peak of the Orioles. The next Orioles, the next good Orioles team is going to come to, for another three or four years. Once Machado leaves, they're going to be very very bad.
0: Does that argument then extend to some of the other guys on the team who might fetch some returns? I'm thinking of Zach Britton in particular, but they've got a few uh, bullpen arms out there that some teams might find interesting. Jonathan Scope has had a really good year, and uh, I think his uh, contract is up at the end of this year. I'm not sure, but I believe that's the case. Are these all guys Do you think that the Orioles should be looking to uh, turn into prospects for the next great Orioles team?
5: Yeah, I mean, if you want to hold on to Gausman and Bundy, in part because they don't have a lot of trade value, fine. Scope's 25, so you make the case that, okay, we'll keep him around because he's young enough to, to be something. But pretty much everything else on this roster, you know, Davis, Trumbo, Jones, the relievers you mentioned, O'Day, Brock, Britton, none of those guys are going to be here when this team is good again. It's it's time to just, once you're selling Machado, you sell everything that isn't nailed down. And frankly, if you can get something for Scope, you might as well as well. Now, the Orioles haven't done this. The Orioles have no have not gone through a rebuild that I can remember. It's possible they haven't gone through an actual rebuild since they got to Baltimore in 54 uh, or 55, whatever their first year was. Uh, but it's time for them to do it. They've drafted poorly. They've done such an awful job of developing their own talent. You know, by now, Gaussman, Bundy, and Harvey were supposed to be, Hunter Harvey was supposed to be the top three uh, starters in the rotation. Uh, you know, Harvey's still hurt. Gaussman and Bundy are disappointing. Um, they just have done a terrible job of developing. You know, and they've also been the team that, Every couple of weeks before, every couple of uh, days before the July second uh, opening of the international market, you hear about the Orioles selling one of their slots. The Orioles have punted internationally, and you can't do that anymore either. So um, it's time for the Orioles to start over. Um, you know, Peter Angelos is eighty-seven, I want to say, um, and I don't think he necessarily wants to do that. Um, if there's a Mike Illich thing happening here, sure, yeah, the Orioles are not going to be good for a while.
0: I wonder, and I don't know if you've written about this, uh, I haven't seen anything of late, but is there going to be issues surrounding whose agent represents whom? Because I know that uh, Zach Britton is represented by Scott Boris, and so is Chris Davis. And Do those kind of things interact in some way that might cause a deal to be more or less easy to make?
5: There are parts of baseball that I basically completely ignore for my own sanity, and one of them is who represents whom. I don't really care about who likes each other and doesn't like each other, and I don't really care about who represents whom. And You're right, Patrick. Um, This is something that that happens. Agencies that represent multiple players have conflicts of interest. They have moral hazard. They also have the ability to exert leverage in ways that isn't necessarily, uh, probably shouldn't happen. But as far as how it might affect the 2017 Baltimore Orioles, I have no idea.
0: And fair enough. Uh, It's interesting from a business point of view. I like listening to the business of uh, baseball podcasts and stuff. Uh, You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. And Joe, let's wrap it up. Uh, During the season, I like to ask our experts to talk about players who get the old thumbs up and thumbs down for the rest of the season. We used to call this studs and duds back in the day, sleepers and creepers. (laughs) It always has to rhyme in some way, But so we're doing something a little different this this season. Uh, Let's start in the American League with a hitter who gets the joshian thumbs up for the balance of the year
5: well this could be one we just talked about you know manny machado stack has numbers are there the power has been there uh the contact rate hasn't really changed that's one of the things you look at and say okay because guy really struggling if the contact rate goes down um but i completely all in on manny machado having a strong final two months of the season
0: and over to the national league who's a hitter that gets your thumbs up
5: we're staying at third base in the Mid-Atlantic region. And, uh, you know, Michael Franco, you know, I mentioned strikeout rate, you know, just 48 strikeouts so far this year. In today's game, his strikeout rate is actually very good. Um, he's also got 29 extra base hits this year. Still just 24 years old. Uh, really a mystery why, why he hasn't followed up that good rookie season in 2015. And, um, I, I'm kind of counting on the core skills to, uh, to, to have an impact here down the stretch. And, you know, he's somebody who I think you can buy pretty well and, uh, and get some value out of over the last two months.
0: And, boy, a terrific buy for a keeper league. He's so young, and he's just uh, starting to come into that age when we expect uh, any kind of skills growth to start manifesting as, uh, as a outcomes growth as well. Uh, over to the mound in the American League. Who's a pitcher that gets your thumbs up?
5: Yeah, he's just back off of the disabled list. Carlos Rodon has only made four starts, and he's walked 12, 12 guys in his first 16, two-thirds innings, so there's some risk. But the raw skills, the fastball-slider combo, is still very nasty. Um, he hasn't thrown a ton of innings this year, so you can expect him to not be shut down. As the year goes on, uh, I think that one of the things that White Sox want to see is, you know, is Carlos Rodon capable of being our number two in future seasons? So I think he'll get to pitch here over the last uh, 11 weeks of the season. And uh, I'm a big believer in him. I was a big believer of him in him coming out of NC State. I think he'll finish the season strong. So I think, you know, Rodon is is a, is a pitcher to go out and get.
0: And finally, a National League pitcher gets your thumbs up.
5: Yeah, uh, yeah, we talked about him as well, Jose Quintana. You know, the raw stats aren't very good, but everything he gains in going to Chicago, including an offense that should score a ton of runs in the second half, um, so you're not only going to get the – we expect the ratio in the ERA to be good, but um, he's somebody who could pick up 10 or 11. I'm not even kidding. He could pick up 10 or 11 wins and 14 starts. Uh, we saw him throw – You know, what was it? The seven shutout, I think, the other day. Uh, I'm a, I think from a fantasy standpoint – um and obviously everybody's already made their fad bids on him so uh you know we'll, we'll see how that works out but uh he's somebody absolutely just i'm completely all in on in the second half i'm not saying randy johnson randy johnson went 11 and 1 with like a 1.8 era the year the astros traded for him that might be asking a lot but you know if i tell you 10 and 1 with a 2.5 era i think that's realistic
0: Joe Sheehan, thumbs up players. Manny Machado, Michael Franco, Carlos Rodon, and Jose Quintana. Let's move over to the other side of the coin, Joe, the thumbs down players. These are guys about whom you think listeners should be cautious at the very least. Uh, Let's start again in the American League with a hitter you think represents uh, Danger Will Smith.
5: Okay, this isn't telling you anything you don't already know, but if you haven't traded Aaron Judge yet, trade Aaron Judge. The on contact numbers are simply going to go down. Um, it's almost and you almost wonder if you have not missed your window because he's come out of the All Star break uh, not hitting at all. So that's that that's like a wheel of fortune where they give you the RST LNE. That's the easy one. Um, but in that same vein, you know George Springer has uh, more than twenty home runs, but a forty or seven percent ground ball rate, and he's got an incredibly high home to fly ball rate. But he's got a lot of attention for, for how well he's played got a lot of tension at the All-Star game, um, you know, speaking during the game, despite having grown up with a stutter, having ha- despite having a stutter. I think it's a great story, uh, but I don't think he's going to replicate the power in the second half. I think his 2017 season is peak, so if I get out from under him right now, um, I would do so.
0: And chances are you could fetch a pretty penny, especially again in keeper leagues. Uh, by the way, if you take the RST, LNE, take a J and an O, you get John Lester. Just saying. Mm-hmm. Thumbs down, <laughs> National League hitter?
5: Uh. This is a hard one I actually had some trouble finding a guy because a lot of them just seem obvious so I'm just gonna go with Mark Reynolds uh, 370 Babbit 27 percent homer to fly ball if the Rockies were to go out and add a bat uh, it'd probably end up getting into Reynolds playing time a bit because it's just not a whole lot he can do um, he, he can fake corner outfield he can he can play some third and some second which doesn't really help the – Rockies all that much they have Arenado and LeMahieu. Um so I think anybody that they go out and get is going to eat in his playing time a bit even with David Dahl now possibly not coming back so uh, I would get out from under Reynolds if I could.
0: The one thing about the Mark Reynolds narrative has been uh, or was at the start of the year that he was striking out quite a bit less he still walks a lot but his strikeout rate has fallen back to about 32 percent which is uh, certainly a cause for concern. Who's an American League pitcher who gets your thumbs down?
5: You know, I've been the low man on Lance McCullers all, all, pretty much from the start. I, I still think he's going to end up long-term as a reliever. Uh, and go, as we head down the stretch here, the a rocky start last night against the Mariners, I don't think the Astros are just going to let him pitch a lot. I, I, just, I feel like the Astros have already gone into, let's set the postseason rotation mode. So uh, McCullers is just going to be managed very carefully down the stretch. So as good as the rate numbers have been, I think you've got some performance risk there, but mostly I think you have usage risk. So uh, even though he's come off the DL, I just don't think you're going to get a lot of innings out
0: of him over the last two months. And it's not like he's out of the woods injury risk-wise as well, given his past history. Uh, National League pitcher who gets your thumbs down, Joe?
5: Gio Gonzalez is one of the largest gaps between his ERA and his fielding independent pitching number. Uh, he just walks way too many guys. I was shocked to see the other day actually they had a 2.6 ERA. I expect that number to go up substantially over the season's final two months. He does benefit from the unbalanced schedule and the an incredibly weak NL East. but I don't even think that's going to be able to save him. I think the ERA is going to go up by at least a run down the stretch.
0: Joe Sheehan's... Thumbs down players, Aaron Judge of the Yankees, Mark Reynolds of Colorado, Lance McCullers of Houston, and Gio Gonzalez of Washington. And Joe, I have to tell you, over the last few weeks when I've been getting experts uh, to offer their thumbs down players, uh, a lot of Aaron Judge, a lot of Gio Gonzalez, and quite a bit of Lance McCullers, so it looks like the experts are aligning. Maybe that uh, confluence of opinion means a little more than it would be if it was just one guy. Joe, uh, tell us where listeners can read more, listen to more of Joe Sheehan.
5: You can follow me on Twitter at Joe underscore Sheehan. best place to get information about the newsletter is at Facebook.com Sheehan Newsletter. There's actually a discount link there. You can also uh, I, I post articles and I comment on them. I post excerpts from the newsletter. I do a lot more interaction there now these days. So Facebook.com Sheehan Newsletter. You can also read me at The Athletic, uh, their family of sites, Chicago, Detroit, Toronto, Cleveland, um, and as well in uh, and, and the pages of Sports Illustrated.
0: Is that uh, facebook.com slash?
5: Yeah, if you were to just type Sheehan Newsletter into a Facebook search box, you'd land on my smiling face.
0: (laughs) All right. Joe, thanks a million. It's always a great uh, joy to talk with you. I learn so much every time. Uh, I hope we can have you again and again and again.
5: Sounds good, Patrick. Thanks a lot.
0: Joe Sheehan writes for the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter and, as you heard, Sports Illustrated and those other outlets. Next up, our Baseball HQ commentaries, the Minor League Minute. Playing time, frequent flyers, weekend pitcher matchups, and master notes. That's all coming up. The fun has just begun on Baseball HQ Radio.
2: You are challenged by
6: the game of baseball to do your very best day in and day
2: out. And that's all I've ever tried to do. Thank you.
5: Baseball HQ Radio.
0: Cal Ripken, always a class act. It's around this time every week here at Baseball HQ Radio that I try to let you know a little bit of what's going on at the BaseballHQ.com site and why we call it the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In playing time today, we've got a lot of coverage of the trade followed, of course. Also, developments in the Rangers' bullpen. Corey Kluber misses a start this week. In Facts and Flukes, Trevor Cahill, Jared Ickoff, Keon Broxton, and more studies of player performance, and in the GM's office, Ray Murphy discusses dueling with the emotions of DFS. There's that and a whole lot more at the website with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is the best fantasy baseball website in the business, and it is BaseballHQ.com. <laughs> And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have playing time, frequent flyers, weekend pitcher matchups, and master notes, and leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at White Sox outfield prospect
7: Blake Rutherford is BaseballHQ.com Minor League's analyst Rob Gordon. The Chicago White Sox have been amongst the most aggressive and active teams in baseball as they enter the second year of a complete team overhaul. Last December, the Sox added elite hurlers Lucas Giolito and Ronaldo Lopez, and then this week the club made two huge trades, sending Jose Quintana to the Cubs for Aloy Jimenez and Dylan Cease, and then sending Todd Frazier to the Yankees for Blake Rutherford and Ian Clarkin. While Jimenez and Cease have the most upside, fantasy owners should take a close look at Rutherford. The 20-year-old outfielder was the 16th overall pick in the 2016 draft, and has solid across-the-board tools. Rutherford combines a sweet left-handed stroke with good bat speed to shoot line drive to all fields. He has average power at present, but it has the potential to develop into an above-average tool down the road. He has good speed and a strong arm, but will likely move to a corner spot once he reaches the majors and fills out his lean 6'3", 195-pound frame. On the year, Rutherford is hitting 281 with a 342 on base percentage and a 389 slugging percentage. He has 20 doubles, two home runs, and nine stolen bases and 274 bats for low A Charleston. Long term, the White Sox have stockpiled some of the best prospects in baseball, and Blake Rutherford should be a key piece of the South Siders' rebuild and is worth owning in deep A only formats. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ minor league analyst Rob Gordon.
0: Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get fantasy intelligence for winners is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. Our scouting team has reports and updates on the top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups reports, and everything you need to keep tabs on the rising stars. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, and these days with all the injuries, who doesn't need that? BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now our playing time segment, where we look at situations that could mean players getting more playing time or losing at-bats or innings. In this week's edition, we'll look at potential trade ripples in Baltimore and Toronto. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield.
8: There's been a lot more hot stove action since our last podcast, headlined, of course, by J.D. Martinez going to Arizona, and then Todd Frazier, David Robertson, and Tommy Canely going from Chicago to the Bronx. So what's next? Our own Chris Olson took a stab at this in his AL East playing time tomorrow column this week, honing in on two potential sellers in this market, Baltimore and Toronto. First in Baltimore, where rumors are starting to swirl that Zach Britton could potentially be leaving town to a contender. Britton just returned earlier this month from an April forearm strain, and while manager Buck Showalter announced on July 19th that Britton is back officially as the Orioles closer, that would obviously change if Baltimore finds a suitor for Britton. Such a move would reopen the door for Brad Brock, who's chipped in with 16 saves at 2.68 ERA, and an 089 whip. Brock misses a ton of bats. He's got a 13% swinging strike rate. That's driven his 43 strikeouts in just 40 innings of work. Our 351 expected ERA and 120 base performance value or BPV suggests that Brock would again thrive at the back end of Baltimore's pen if Zach Britton is dealt. And in Toronto the blue jays are losing ground quickly in the AL wild card race, and if they can find a suitor with deep pockets in need of a power bat, Jose Bautista might be on his way to the States. Bautista's played most of his games in right field this season, which would create a vacancy for the Jays to look at some of their younger outfielders in the system. The most obvious replacement might be Anthony Alford, who just started a rehab assignment after breaking his hand in April after getting just eight major league at-bats. We gave Alford an impressive 8B prospect rating when he was first called up. He thrived in the Arizona Fall League last season, and Alford hit 325 with a 411 on base with three homers and six steals in just 123 AA at-bats this season. A lot of the focus in these trade deadline deals involves the headline guy moving to their new team, but just as important from a fantasy standpoint are the guys who backfill those positions, like potentially in Baltimore where Brad Brock is a decision away from being a closer again, and Toronto where Anthony Alford could backfill Jose Bautista if he were to be dealt. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com.
0: Baseball HQ analyst Ryan Bloomfield has his playing time commentary here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for frequent flyers, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyers are Mets first baseman Dominic Smith, and Dodgers starting pitcher Walker Buehler. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky.
4: As rumors continue to swirl around the July 31st non-waiver trade deadline, let's take a look at the situation in New York, where 31-year-old Mets first baseman Lucas Duda is playing out the final year of his contract while waiting in the wings is our first frequent flyer, 22-year-old first baseman Dominic Smith. Described by Jock Thompson as a pure left-handed hitter with batting championship upside as April 2nd edition of Keepers on BaseballHQ.com, it appears that Dominic Smith is also developing some power. A career 301 hitter in the minors, Dominic Smith is currently batting 334 for AAA Las Vegas and is only one home run shy of his career high of 14 home runs set in 2016. Of course, there's no guarantee that Lucas Duda will be traded, just like there's no guarantee that Dominic Smith will be promoted. That's why Dominic Smith, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be long shots, who may be worth a flyer if they are still available in your league. But consider this. Dominic Smith ended the 19-game hitting streak when he went 0-4 for 4 on the 4th of July. Nothing to worry about, though. Dominic Smith simply started another hitting streak on July 5th as the last 11 consecutive games so far. In other words, Dominic Smith has produced a hit in 30 of his last 31 games. Wow, that's impressive. Another impressive performance this season belongs to 22-year-old Los Angeles Dodgers starting pitcher Walker Mueller. The former first-round selection in 2015 has progressed quickly through the Dodgers organization, beginning the 2017 season in Class A Advanced Rancho Cucamonga, before matriculating through AA and landing in A Oklahoma City on July 16th. In 17 starts through three levels, Walker Mueller has compiled a 3.44 ERA in 2017, striking out 91 batters and only 65 innings pitched. Wow! That translates to a dominance rate of 12.6 strikeouts per nine, almost double a seven strikeouts per nine rate that BaseballHQ.com uses to a, as a benchmark to identify elite pitchers. Plus, remember when Jeremy Deloney published his list of long-term top starting pitchers earlier this season? Back on March 5th on BaseballHQ.com, Jeremy again correctly predicted that some of these top prospects could force their way to the majors in 2017, despite starting out at lower levels of the minors. He said it happens every year. Indeed, Jeremy was right about several pitchers on that list, including Francis Martez, Jeff Hoffman, Sean Newcomb, and Jake Faria, among others. And perhaps soon he'll be right about Walker Mueller, too. More importantly, maybe you'll be right about adding both Dominic Smith and Walker Buehler, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ
0: analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyers comment here on the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now our weekend pitcher matchups report. Matchups are rated on a scale centered on zero. Ratings of plus one or better are strong bets for you to start. Ratings of minus one or worse are strong bets for you to sit. Between the ones we call those the wild cards, they're toss-ups, and you'll have to consider them based on your own risk appetite. With a look at this weekend's matchups, including both ends of the series between the Cubs and St. Louis, and many other pitchers as well, here's matchups analyst Greg Fishwick.
6: There's only one recommended start matchup rating this entire weekend, and what else can we say about Clayton Kershaw? So let's combine our marquee matchup and our Saturday or Sunday surprise in a look at the arch St. Louis Cardinals and Chicago Cubs showdown at Wrigley Field. We'll call it our marquee matchup of Saturday and Sunday surprises. On Saturday, it's lefty John Lester with a matchup rating of minus 014, going up against righty Adam Wainwright, who has the only recommended sit matchup rating among the four starters at minus 113. On Sunday, the Cubs send out another lefty, newly acquired Jose Quintana, and his minus 028 to face off with righty Michael Walker at minus 029 after his sterling three hit complete game shutout PQS5. The Cubs are ranked 13th and the Cards 15th in the USA Today Power Rankings of July 12. Both clubs are under 500. The National League Central Division rivals are three games apart in the standings, with the Cubs a game and a half behind the Brewers for the top spot, and the Cards trailing Milwaukee by four and a half. Versus lefties, St. Louis is three games over 500. Against righties, Chicago is six games under 500. At home, the Cubs are four games over 500, and on the road, the Cards are four games under 500. Against teams under 500, the Cubs are 12 games over 500, and the Cards are eight games over 500. Head to head, the Cubs have won six of nine. Chicago's slight edge as a team is reflected in the matchup rating differentials, which favor the North Siders by 99 on Saturday, but by only one on Sunday. Let's begin with the St. Louis starters, Wainwright on Saturday and Waka on Sunday. Adam Wainwright started the season with a PQS 4 at home against Chicago, and also had a PQS 3 at home against the Cubs on May 14. After that, Wainwright followed a string of three PQS dominant outings with a string of three PQS disasters. Wainwright is coming off a PQS disaster zero after two fours and two threes in his previous four efforts. The 35-year-old is suffering through his second consecutive disappointing season. Wainwright is putting up career worsts in whip, ERA, control, swinging strike rate, home runs per nine, and home runs per fly ball. He has career next to worsts in batters faced per game, opponents on base average, line drive percentage, command, and roto value. It's best to avoid Wainwright if you can. Michael Walker threw the first shutout and first complete game of his Major League career in his most recent start. It was a three-hitter with one walk and eight strikeouts on the road against the Mets. In addition to that, his first PQS 5 of the season, he has five other PQS dominant 4s and four PQS disaster 1s, all of which came in a five-start sequence May 25 to June 15. His PQS dominant-to-disaster ratio is 35% dominant to 24% disaster. Just about every aspect of Waka's skill set showed career lows last season. This season, he's rebounded a bit on the surface, but the 26-year-old is nowhere near his 2014 and 2015 marks. Still, his career-low BPV of 80 last season was close to his 87 and 83 in 2014 and 2015, respectively. And Waka's roto value has gone from minus $10 in 2016 to $6 thus far in 2017. Walker’s wildcard matchup rating is apt, and with three PQS dominant starts in his past four outings, our research shows he's likely to produce a respectable effort this Sunday, so he should be worth the risk. The Cubs counter Wainwright on Saturday with John Lester, whose PQS scores of 0 and 5 in his past two starts reflect his 2017 season thus far. His PQS dominant-to-disaster ratio is 25% dominant to 30% disaster. Last season, Lester had four PQS Disaster Zeros and two PQS Disaster Ones. This year, he already has four PQS Disaster Zeros and two PQS Disaster Ones, with 10 weeks still to go. The 33 year old is certainly underperforming expectations, but by how much? Lester is on pace to continue averaging more than 200 innings pitched in the past 10 seasons. But since he became a full-time starter in 2008, Lester is posting his lowest roto value, slowest average fastball velocity, facing his fewest batters per game, allowing his highest home runs per nine and home runs per fly ball, and his second worst whip and third worst control. Lester no longer has the luster of last year, but he should still outshine Wainwright on Saturday. Fresh off his PQS 5 fine first start for the Cubs after moving across town, Jose Quintana should get a hero's welcome in Ridley Field on Sunday. That was his third PQS dominant outing in his past five starts. And Quintana has a PQS dominant to disaster ratio of 30% dominant to 26% disaster. He's bringing with him career bests in whip, opponents on base average, dominance, and first pitch strike rate, along with a fourth consecutive three-digit BPV. In his past five starts, Quintana has a whip of 098, an ERA of 182, an expected ERA of 264, and a BPV of 190. In 30 innings pitched over those five outings, Quintana has issued only eight walks for a control rate of 2.4 walks per nine, and he struck out 42 for a dominance rate of 12.7 strikeouts per nine and a command ratio of 5.3 strikeouts per walk. And guess what? Things should only get better for Jose Quintana now that he's in the National League. Get him and go with him if you can. Be sure to check our site for updated matchup information every morning. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com.
0: Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick has his weekend pitcher matchup segment here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. This week, I want to talk about the great ideas I get from the reader comments at BaseballHQ.com. Last week in Master Notes, I discussed Kelvin Herrera's propensity for pitching better in save situations than in non-save situations. That topic had come up on the fantastically great BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And this week's ideas come from another of the site's Vox Populi sources, the comment sections after our articles. These reader responses are excellent. They put ideas into new and different perspectives. And like other HQ analysts, I usually reply to the article comments in the article comments. But this week I'm going to respond to the comments about the Herrera Masternotes article in a new Masternotes article. Now you might call this a lack of imagination, but I call it symbiosis, or synergy, or maybe just a hangover. The first comment delivered by my beautiful wife, Lisa, was this.
1: So what can we do with this information? Nothing, it seems.
0: Ouch. It strikes me that the information could lead an imaginative reader to adjust how he values closers, perhaps bumping the value of closers whose managers don't put them into games except in save situations. The information could especially affect how the reader values Herrera in particular when making roster decisions about closers who are available at draft or in trade. I know I've already downgraded Herrera in my own league. There's also a broader issue here about the HQ philosophy. I drew the inference that the reader thinks what I failed to say was, here's what you should do. And the thing is, here at Baseball HQ, we generally try not to say that. I don't know anything about any particular reader's context. Does he have Herrera? Is he thinking of trading him or trading for him? What are the saves race and decimals like in his league, etc., etc. We pride ourselves on providing data, analysis, and comment, but we also pride ourselves on leaving it to our readers to figure out how to respond for themselves. To sum it up in a catchphrase, we report, objectively, you decide, rationally, based on your situation. The next subscriber commented,
1: I absolutely believe in this, not only for Herrera, but for other closers. I always dread seeing one of my closers enter in a non-safe situation.
0: I appreciate the support, but I'm leery about the idea that believing in something makes it actionable. I feel like this could be an instance of confirmation bias, where a person has an established opinion or point of view and appreciates that the article confirms that position. The issue is that the article doesn't actually support the position, at least not in general. It does turn out that for Herrera there appears to be something to it. But for now, that only applies to Kelvin Herrera. Extrapolating from one closer and in 120 innings to the entire universe of closers could be premature at best and downright misleading at worst. Based on what I found, I would be willing at this point to place a roster bet based on Herrera's seeming save-non-save splits, but I wouldn't assume the same is true of all closers across the board. I have made a note to do a research piece in the offseason to broaden the study to include all closers and possibly over a longer period. Of course, since I wrote the note to myself on the back of a Costco receipt, I'm not 100% confident this will ever get done. Attention, Brent or Ed, if your filing system for stories is better than mine, could somebody remind me about this in November? Here's our next subscriber comment.
1: Really enjoy your posts. I would like a study of hard-hit balls after 100 pitches and the next start effect.
0: Aside from the compliment, this is an interesting research idea as well. And I actually did reply in the article comments. I said, an interesting question. I'll start looking at the various data sources. It will be pretty easy to get stats per time through the lineup, but I'm not sure about time through the lineup plus pitch count. In fact, I'm not sure I can get pitchers' performance stats in games of only a certain number of pitches, and I'm quite sure I can't judge their performance only on pitches after 90 pitches. All that said, it's an interesting idea. Where is that Costco receipt? Oh, damn, I already lost it? Oh, good. Here's my farmer's market shopping list from March. Peppers, squash, tomatoes, research piece on high pitch count hard hit ball rates. Hmm. The last reader comment made still another interesting point.
1: With the cost of starting pitching injuries, avoiding pitching injuries means more money to assemble a good bullpen. And a good bullpen means fewer injuries to your starting pitchers, meaning more money to marshal on position players.
0: I'm not sure if this is a virtuous circle, or circular logic, or virtuously circular logic, but the premise that a good bullpen should result in fewer starting pitcher injuries was interesting to me. And unlike high pitch count hard hit ball rates, this one was a little easier to check. I compiled all 30 teams' bullpen stats for 2015 and 16, and scored all the teams' roto-style on three categories. Expected FIP, which is an expected ERA metric allowing for league averages and park effects. Win probability added over leverage index. This is the bullpen's record at improving their team's win probabilities, controlling for the leverage index of each relief appearance, giving more credit for tougher situations. And finally, shutdowns minus meltdowns. This is a counting stat. Adding relief appearances worth .06 win probability added or more, and subtracting appearances worth .06 win probability added or less. After awarding the points roto style, I ranked all the teams on their totals. Then I compared those overall rankings to the team's rankings in avoiding starting pitcher DL days lost, from the fewest, the White Sox at 57, Up at the top, to the most, the Dodgers, 1,440 down at the bottom. The results? There's no connection. The top 10 bullpens, including three teams that were also top 10 in DL days, five teams in the middle 10, and two teams in the bottom 10. The middle 10 bullpens by performance had four top 10 DL avoiders, two in the middle 10 and four in the bottom 10, and the worst bullpens had three top 10 DL avoiders, three in the middle and four at the bottom. The bottom DL team, the Dodgers, actually had the fifth-best bullpen, and the best DL avoiders, the White Sox, had the third-worst bullpen. The teams that matched up in both top and bottom tens were Baltimore and Boston. They were in the top tens of both bullpens and starting pitcher DL avoidance, while Colorado, Philadelphia, Cincinnati, and Oakland had bottom ten bullpens and bottom ten injury avoidance. This all stands to reason. I think the logic of the idea works something like this. Good bullpen creates manager confidence in his relievers. A manager confident in his relievers is likelier to hook his starters sooner. Starters who get hooked sooner have reduced workloads, and starters with reduced workloads get fewer injuries. The logic is valid, but one of the premises is not true. The evidence I've read does not directly tie starting pitcher injuries to their workloads, especially at the major league level. I've seen some good evidence that does tie injuries to high workloads for college and high school age pitchers, but not in the big leagues. At the major league level, I've seen pretty good evidence that injuries can be connected to throwing a lot of non-fastballs. Curves, sliders, cutters, all those kind of things seem to put a bit more strain on a pitcher, but that's got nothing to do with the bullpen. There's also evidence that injuries are connected to a lot of high-stress workloads like innings where the pitcher must throw a lot of pitches while battling through the threat of multiple base runners. And in fact, an early hook in those situations could help reduce injuries. But for now, the evidence suggests good bullpens and starting pitcher injuries, they're unrelated. Thanks for the ideas to BaseballHQ.com subscribers Semper Gumby, Reaper, And John, and VJ Jr. Keep those comments coming. As I said, great ideas come from anywhere, and all the Baseball HQ analysts really appreciate them. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. You just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. And of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 21st. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 29 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of the show, Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter and Sports Illustrated. Joe is a fine baseball mind and an eloquent and engaging writer. Check out his newsletter if you haven't already. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute analyst was Rob Gordon. Our Playing Time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. Our Frequent Flyers commentator was Alex Becky. And our Pitcher Matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt, an Astronauts commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Keep giving us those great ideas. Also, remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook, and we have a Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, and please send us a message on our email address, BHQRadio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday when our feature guest expert will be Gene McCaffrey from Wise Guy Baseball. That's Gene McCaffrey on the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long.